Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Smashbox TV's podcast 463. Sarah Miller, alongside fellow master Johnny V. (laughs) Well, we're becoming a master's-only podcast. We've changed our... uh, uh, we've changed everything that we've been doing, and we feel that now the master's field is the only field that counts. You're the only one that matters tonight. because They're the uh, only one that masters tonight? Yes, there you go. That uh, We, in just a few moments, are going to be having our now two-time master's world champion, Joe Revere. He's going to be joining us here in just a little bit. We're also, of course, going to recap a little bit of the action that I saw and the rest of the world saw at the Masters Worlds. Nearly 900 competitors over there in Flagstaff. <sighs> Hannah Macbeth said it best today. She said, it looked like you had the time of your life. And then I started going into that rendition from Dirty Dancing. She loved it. And she was right. I did. There was no Dirty Dancing, so to speak. Although Dave Felberg's caddy, Dan Long, really wanted wanted me to run after him and you wanted to hoist me up like Jennifer Gray, but please record that. <laughs> it would be a sight. I promise you guys I that. I don't know who would get hurt more. <laughs> uh, well, uh, again, talk about that. The Masters that took place, both M and Pro. And then we had the PCS Open taking place over in Norway, in Vestnes, Norway. And Oros uh, is where it all went down. So, Super excited that I can talk about that a little bit as to what we saw for the results and the fact that I've had the pleasure of being there. And it's, I, I, <laughs> am I like an explorer? Sometimes I get to go out and see some of these places then before uh, our biggest event. You're discovering these yeah, places. I, I'm not discovering them. I won't, I can't stake that claim, but I am so honored 
to go to places like Vestness, to Norway, which Avery Jenkins was at and had really put on the map in, in terms of helping those guys out. But the fact that I was there in like 2018 or 2019. Would you say you're the Christopher Columbus of? <laughs> without without the. Uh, awful connotations. It, yeah, the like awful old. racial overtones to it. Yeah. Oh, no, Terry. That's why I threw the Christopher Columbus. <laughs> I could have gone with Leif Erikson. I could have, you know, there, there's like other. Uh, I, I went right to Christopher Columbus, my friend. Uh, yeah. So uh, it is awesome, though that uh, we are seeing the first ever elite series event uh, take place over there in Europe. Uh, the Yeah. The first elite series that's taken place in Europe. In and it sounds sense. like it probably won't be the last. I imagine we're going to get some more next year. We've already hearing some pros kind of whisper that maybe they're going to pull a Macbeth and spend a little bit more time over in Europe next year. Yeah. You can understand that. And, and I'll take that a, a step farther and just say, it makes sense because you're looking now for the excitement, the new fans, the culture, the sightseeing. Like you get all of those things, and I just the healthcare, a, the healthcare. <laughs> depending you, on what you but do. But I just I just made that post at coming back from the worlds myself, saying even just being at the world championships where really everyone was here and we were hosting in the U.S. It still gave me that itch and that desire of like, hey, go take an international disc golf trip. Because there's just really nothing like it. And going over for a week, which a lot of our players are doing, surprisingly, are going over just for the European Open. That's crazy to me. But yeah, you should be doing Norway and the European Open. And then if you can somehow turn this into an extended visit, a a three-week, a four-week, and I know not everyone has those easy means to do so, but it's getting easier now and uh, now than ever, than it ever has been. And I, I can't say it enough. I encourage everyone. And I think too about our, you know, the kind of the rumblings and the comments we've made about having like a Southeast Asia tour that takes place in that January to February time frame uh, when you've seen us go to Thailand and Taiwan and and Malaysia during There's, that time frame. There are quite a few there. open players that are staying for the Alan Open. Yeah. Okay. So makes sense. Uh, but yes, this last week PCS Open. Then we have the President's Cup, which is going to be, is that going to be going live just about as we're wrapping up our show? Oh, my God, yes. Yeah, just about. I never thought about that. We could do, just roll it right to a, (laughs) just keep it rolling, you know, right to a watch along. Oh, that's such a good idea that we just thought of, or not. Uh, The President's Cup, and then the European Open taking place, and then like you said, there's going to be an event next weekend, and, and then it's going to keep rolling as well. So, anyway, welcome in, everyone. Like I said, in a few moments, we're going to have Joe Revere joining us to talk about what we saw at the world championships taking place in Flagstaff. Uh, I'll just quickly dive in before he joins us that congratulations. I think when it was all said and done, there were 26 world champions that were crowned between the amateurs and the professionals. I think I spoke with 16 of them at some point after they had won. Some were playing on the over on the pro course, which is where Joe was. And some were playing on the the what's called the the crew course, and that's where I got to see about uh, thirteen or fifteen of the uh, divisions wrap up. And I didn't get a chance to talk with literally every single divisional winner on that crew course, but it was uh, about seventy five percent of them. And those videos recapping what they had to say and and going over their championship moments. Those are starting to release on my YouTube channel right now. I've already have a total of two vid two videos out. Featuring six different champions. 
<laughs> so they're just going to keep on rolling. We're blocking you didn't them. Give each champion their own. No, because I th- we're doing. I I'm doing about two to four per. No, that per. makes total. So sense. they're going to be all digestible of like four to seven minutes uh, when it's all said and done, and that might be two or three or four champions in that one video block. So already rolling out. I just released the the other one uh, with Juliana Corver and some other FP champions uh, just actually uh, an hour or two ago. All right, speaking of champions, we've got none other than now a two-time defending. Back-to-back. Yes, defending his world title in the MP40 division, Joe Revere. Joe, welcome to the show. Hi, Terry. Hi, Wad. This is awesome. Thanks for having me, you guys. Uh, it, oh, no, thanks for being able to make the show. It's it's our pleasure to have you on here. Yeah, it feels, it feels overdue because you're often talked about, mm-hmm. obviously in a good way, but... For somebody who may not know you as well as we do or know quite your uh, as much of your backstory, tell everyone about your like your disc golf life and and why we maybe don't see you week in and week out, even though you're, you're skillful enough to do you're so. You're 1032 rated player. Honestly, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could be cashing every week on the pro tour. <laughs> tell us about it. Yeah, so I started playing when I was 28 and I had already been a teacher for, geez, a few years at that point. Um, And so my career as a teacher started before my career as disc golf. And uh, once I got into disc golf, I I loved it and and quickly got good. And I've been with Innova for, I don't even know, 15, 16 years or something like that. Um, And then it was kind of a weekend thing, you know, it was, you know, teachers don't make a lot of money. So I was able to continue my career, but then that thing started swelling up and it's always been in the back of my mind to, uh, to do it full time. Um, I know Innova was on a higher team and they had said, we want, you know, a certain number of, of tournaments per year and really trying to, you know, encourage me to get out there. And I thought about it. I thought hard about it. Um, without insurance, uh, I've got a mortgage to pay. Um, and I actually, the year that that happened, I tore my hamstring on the fourth hole of the season. Um, and so I, you know, ever since then, I thought I made the right choice, especially now that I got two little kiddos and I've been a teacher for 20 years. So I got 10 more years until I retire. So maybe I'll hit the road full time then. Or if there's enough money to justify it, I would always consider it. That's I mean, I look at some of the list of players in on the pro tour and their ratings and how they're making a living. They're They're doing it. You know, they might not have a mortgage. Some of them do. Maybe some of them have a significant other that tours with them or some of them that stay at home. How, how hard of a, how hard of a decision is it for you? I mean, it's like I said, 1032. Do you know what, where that puts you in the list of top rated players? You can't be that far down the list. I have no idea. I'm not sure. All right. Well, I'm going to guess 40th, maybe. Maybe um, higher than that, even. We'll, we'll we'll do some research as we talk about it. But w- w- do you kind of roll with that typical? I don't want to say typical teacher mentality, but is, is the just the summers are like you're going hard, or is that tough because of of having two children? And it's also kind of like kid time. Yeah, so I get that a lot. And the funny thing is, I don't play as much in the summer as people would think. I mean, I always try to hit now Masters Worlds. Now that I'm almost forty six. Um, usually I get like, I played 20 tournaments last year 
and they won, I think, 17 of them, and I think 15 of them were open. So it was a really good season, but I feel like a majority of those came during the school year, so it's kind of a weekend thing, or I might take a Friday off, don't tell my principal, Mm -hmm. Um, and then drive. There's several times, even in the last year, like five or six, where I drive through the night, and I just drive straight to school, and I show up and pretend like like I got a good night's sleep. Uh, 20 seconds, the by question. the way. You're the 22nd the highest rated player in the world. 22nd? Yes. Oh, wow. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. You're, yeah. You're, you're higher rated than James Proctor, who's on a tear this year. So let's, yeah. for our viewers, we're putting that in perspective. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the game, you know, honestly, it's it's been, and the more success as I'm getting older and I've had kids and I feel like I've matured in many ways, I feel like my golf game's getting better. The physical game has always been there, um, but there's so much wisdom to gain. And, and I feel like I'm getting there, so I'm feeling like I'm playing at my best and at the highest level. Um, but I have just never been a gambler. I, and mm-hmm. with mortgage and health insurance and, you know, if I go down and all of a sudden, you know, plus I would have to put back my retirement a year. Um, there's Let's just say there's been some opportunities that have been presented um, but I just can't gamble <laughs> my physical health. I can't do it. Remind me, did you not, you got as far as like a van, some solar panels, like there was like a mini tour at one point, if I recall, five, six, eight years ago, right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then I thought the van was too small because I had a wife and two kids. So I sold it and got a big camper and now I sold that and now I'm back into a, I've got a big van again and it's even better than my first one. So, I mean, like I have the rig, like I'm ready to go. Everything is, but it's, you know, I could even do a mini tour in the summer. Um, but again, my priorities have changed. Like I love this golf so much, but I love my kids more than anything in the world. So being here and being with, I, you know, that's irreplaceable time um, that I just, you know, no amount of money could, could take away. If you don't mind me asking, how old are the kids? Uh, seven and nine. And are they out on the course with you at all? Are you... Yeah, my son's, man, he hit a big putt today. We were out playing Johnny Roberts here in Denver. And uh, he's starting to feel it. And especially now that this whole world champion thing is, is he's like, wow, he's, he's kind of sinking in a little bit what it is. And he's like, let's go play some more disc golf. So um, it's funny. My son is like me. He's got, I think there might be a gene for competitiveness. You know, I think Paul Macbeth has it. I think Eagle has it. I have it. And my son has it. Um, and I feel like that drive and determination is half of the battle when you're trying to improve. My daughter does not have a competitive bone <laughs> in her body and neither does my wife. Okay. Now, of course, your son is, is, can see you play, uh, you know, not only this last week with a lot of the post-production coverage, but just in general, he can consume disc golf as can you. Do you guys do that at all as a father-son combo? Do you, do you ever watch any particularly big events or other events that you're not part of or events that you, you, where you were covered. Do you guys share that? Um, you know, he's young enough and, and he, we're so into mountain biking. We're so into, I telemark ski and we backcountry ski and there's so many things we do. I don't know if it's so much the disc golf every once in a while. He likes, he really likes Eagle. He loves to watch Eagle, um, which hey, I don't blame him, man. That guy can crush. <laughs> Um, so every time he's on, he'll always stop building Legos or something and goes, that Eagle? Or, yeah, that's Eagle. Um, but we bond over disc golf. Um, we bond over a lot of things. But come on, you have to whisper like, 
yeah, but I own him in Colorado, right? <laughs> like, like that guy don't beat me here. He's good, but dad, he's got it. <laughs> I won't say on Smashbox what I'll say to my son behind the. <laughs> uh, well, so it's funny because a lot of times Eagle will watch the show, or Eagle's dad, Pat, is a is a frequent viewer of the show, yep. so. I'm just trying to start a little, you know, crap. And yeah. Kind of nothing here. Now, now, and, and let, let's take that though, um, in a little more serious tone. Of course, in Colorado, the likes of a, of Aaron Gossage, the likes of a Joel Freeman, Eagle McMahon, those are all a few names. And then I know some of the, the promoters, you know, Doug used to live there, but then also a Wade, uh, a Ray Woodruff and a Kyle Harrigan and Kyle Maudy, who used to be in the Midwest when we started. 30 years ago, uh, you know, obviously Colorado, a great disc golf scene. Explain some of that competitiveness because you're, you're, you're on a short list of people that have gotten past the likes of Eagle McMahon, probably in Colorado. Yeah, man, it's, it is, we've been saying it for years and we've been, I remember when Eagle was just a little guy, I think he was about the same age as my son, maybe 10 years old. And we could already see his form and we would say, that kid's going to be good someday. Um, and we've been saying that for years and years and years. And, and I don't know if people believed it at first, but now, I mean, it is exploding, not only in, in growth and just numbers, but the skill level. Um, yeah, look at Joel, look at Aaron Gossage, you know, look at Eagle. Eagle's just one of the best in the world. Um, I'm not sure if it's in the water. I'm not sure if it's in, you know, just the spirit of the game that drives that competition so high. Um, there's lots of different styles. So, I, you know, I don't think... I don't think people are mimicking their game after mine, maybe their backhand game, but certainly not their putting or their forehand game. Um, and so I don't know, it, it's growing at such a level that I can, it's like now it's really beginning to, you know, explode. There's so many good kids, so many good players. And, you know, when a tournament in Colorado goes live, I mean, it's full in seconds and it's been that way for years. Yeah. And that's something else that I know that I've talked about. And then of course I've come there now for, I think four, maybe even five iterations of the Rocky Mountain Women's, which continues to be one of the single greatest women's only events uh, that's taken place in the country. And and by doing so, that's helped, uh, you know, introduce me to so many of these of these not only competitors, but also all of the movers and shakers. And and I'm really, really you know honored to call Jeff Hungerford a friend as well. And he's such an incredible uh, human. One thing I noticed this week when we were doing our wrap-up shows is, or I pointed out, it, when we were looking at the lead card, I forget which day it was, but it had essentially you, Kale, Felberg, and and somebody else that was up there, maybe a, Rico. Uh, an Anthon or somebody. And the one thing that I kind of noticed is like, hey, guys, we're throwing back a little bit, because you're about the same age as me and Johnny. I'm throwing back a little bit to... uh not relying on forehands. Yes. Now, is, is that is that just when, how, or when you were brought into the game? Is that uh, it's not a Colorado thing because Aaron Gossage, Joel Freeman, and, and Eagle rely on them. So, do you care that that's not uh, a main factor in your game, or is it? I, I do have the overhand game. So when it comes yep. to shape holes, a lot of people. Where they they'll throw the forehand. I cannot for an overhand game. I can get it still out to like three fifty, um, and I'll lean on that because of the accuracy and just the comfort. I grew up being a quarterback and a, a pitcher mm-hmm. in baseball, and so just that throwing motion was really familiar to me. When I very first started playing, I actually only threw forehands, um, mm-hmm. and that's the great irony of all of this. Is I went went and played with um, T.J. Lawrence from Colorado. Okay. 
just incredibly good rock thrower. And when I first started, you know, playing, I could, I could throw really far, but I was watching him like, I need to learn how to do that. And I taught myself how to play. Um, other than him showing me how to throw a rock, but I just went out to a field by myself and just threw, you know, that obsessive personality. I would throw for eight hours a day in a field, just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I don't get bored putting or throwing or anything like that. And my confidence in that backhand because of years of doing that got so high, I'll opt for a backhand in almost any situation um, because I know that the probability says I'm probably, you know, the chances are I'm going to execute that turnover. I'm more likely to execute that shot than I am to execute a forehand. And I I have like a 400 foot forehand. Um, I did at the celebrity skins at the GK skins up in Bailey last year. Um, I threw a thumber and I hurt my elbow and I just started throwing forehands again at Worlds. So I went for a year and that was injury related. And what that made me realize, because I, you know, I, I would have it and I'd work on it and spend my time doing it. But, but when I was injured and I couldn't do that, I really went back to my backhand and it's better than it's ever felt. So I'm now I'm even less likely to throw those forehands. <laughs> Although I did, throw, I did throw a lot of Worlds. That was more because of the wind. We had wind the entire time. Okay. Yeah. A scary thought for the rest of the field. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, uh, so one of the newcomers, uh, in full disclosure, I'm going to admit to this. I, I was in the same lodging quarters as Dave Felberg, along with Chris Oreck, uh, this week. But one of the newcomers to the division was, of course, Kale LaVisca, who came in with, I believe, the, the highest rating, you know, within a few points of view, but the highest rating. Obviously, you know, the, the one of the new kids on the block, you know, even just like the band, he looks I, like I, a boy bander. Actually, right? Joe's rated yeah. higher than. Oh, is Joe? Okay. Two points. Oh, by two points. Yeah. Okay. Um, but Kale comes into the uh, division. Matthew Blakely's kind of newer on the scene. Do, do you care who shows up? I mean, does, does it matter or is it just work to do for you? I mean, I care who shows up because I really, Kale's an incredible person. Love playing against him. He's one of the per- first pros that I met. Um, so I absolutely love playing with him. But in terms of like, you know, if I'm afraid of someone or who I want to beat or whatever, it doesn't matter. I just I want to beat everybody there and I don't care who's there. Um, that's kind of my goal. Um, I have to tell you something, Terry. At the beginning of <laughs> beginning of this year in the spring at the memorial, um, you were commentating and Kale was on the card. And it may have been early in the tournament. I don't remember. But you had said Kale this year is a master's player. And if he's not the favorite to win worlds, I don't know who is. And uh, I, uh, he knows who is. I'll never forget that because I was actually watching with my son, and I was like, interesting. Like he's not even going to give me a shout out. So, you know, I think we all find inspiration. We all find that motivation from somewhere. And for me, that was a very motivating comment. I just have to appreciate that. I, I. Uh, clearly flubbed on that, um, and I'm glad. I'm glad you took that as as a just that a little motivation, and and it was in, especially in looking back. And I'm not just saying this; that clearly was a little bit disrespectful. I I have just thought about Kale as being so good, and then you have that like fresh energy when you get to MP40, where everyone's like, "Well, when they get there, they're just going to run over the field." And knowing mm-hmm. how competitive uh, he's been in open, which you clearly are as well, but knowing that, yeah, that was that. That's just an absolute oversight and uh, and a silly statement on my <laughs> part. So yeah, but I mean, with that said, 
I have to agree. I just took it as I better work hard to even have a chance this year. And I honestly went in knowing Kale. I mean, I played with them for a long, long time, many years. Um, and I knew it was going to be a battle. You know, if I was going to do well, I knew I would have to beat Kale. I knew I knew he was going to be there. And for all those, you know, younger guys, those 37, 38 year olds that are going to hit 40, you're going to go through the same process that I went through. And probably most people that, hey, man, I'm young. I can beat these guys are getting old. But it's still competitive. There's a lot of good players. Um, and honestly, when you your first year in Masters, I feel like there's more pressure. Um, I feel like it's harder to win because everybody else has the same feeling of like, we're not going to let this guy come in and think that it's going to be easy. Yeah. So I guess maybe that, that follows up to a, a similar question that was, were there any surprises at the Worlds for you? And that could be of other players or of yourself or of any situations. But were there any surprises this year for you? There were surprises. Um, there was a couple of mistakes that people made and not everybody, you know, misfires. It was mental mistakes. I thought that I was like, that's going to cost them. And I was surprised a couple times. I don't want to, I mean, spoiler, spoiler alert. You have me on here. So <laughs> in the last round, Kale's drive on hole two, um, I knew that we had a wind. We could feel the wind as a right to left, but I knew down by the basket, it was a left to right. I didn't, I got there a week early. And so I just, I had known that if you let hang one out to the right, that wind that we can't see is just going to drop it. And as soon as Kale hung it out over the water at that angle, I just I immediately was like, that's, a, that's going out of bounds. And sure enough, it dropped out of bounds. So <clears throat> little things like that, where I was kind of surprised where I picked up strokes and I didn't expect it. Um, I was surprised at, I don't know, Feldberg is an incredible putter. He made so many putts and nothing against him. I was just surprised that he, he did so many good dead center putts that it surprised me, um, because I missed some pretty simple, pretty simple putts. Um, I was surprised that the wind was from the Southwest for two weeks straight, the exact same wind never changed. I, so I was kind of surprised by that. Um, I, I would say the last thing I was surprised by was that after round four, it was down to me and Kale battling. Yeah. Um, I, I had expect, cause I have so much respect for Anton. Uh, his game is coming back and man, he's good. Uh, Feldberg obviously is there. Martin, who I battled with last year, there's so many good players I had expected. It, it's hard to create score separation on those courses. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a, you know, someone's nine, then there's like eight people at eight. And then there's like 15 people at seven. It's really hard to kind of break away from everyone. So once, once the round was over after round four, I'd looked at the scores and I was surprised to see that we had like six strokes on, you know, in third place. But the last thing I'll say about being surprised is I was surprised. I wasn't nervous. I felt, I mean, everybody's nervous, but it was the world championships and I felt nothing like I did last year. I felt so confident and clear and focused and, and ready as opposed to last year. It was like, I really want to win this. There was so much pressure. Um, and I was, su- I was really surprised when I first started that first round thinking to myself, where, where is it? Where's the anxiety? Where's the, you know, where's the rushing thoughts or where's the second guessing? Where's the I mean, apprehensions on the course? We hear it all the time uh, with the MPO field. When you see one of the younger players, show up and they end up folding and they end up losing. Everybody always says you have to be in the position. You have to learn 
how to win. Yes. That's clearly what you did last year. You learned how to win and yes. you backed it up clearly. <laughs> no, nothing can beat the wisdom and experience. You know, people always say, well, respect your elders. And, and I don't think that, you know, in some ways that's true because they've gone through these experiences and, um, I always used to learn by playing with other people. In fact, Paul Ulibarri and Kale used to come to Colorado and play, and you know they were the best. And I just observed and watched them, and and learned as you know learned as I watched them learn and gain even more knowledge. Anything you do to gain those experiences, watching YouTube, you know, watching your guys' podcasts, and you know, just experiencing as many tournaments as you can because it pays off for sure. Someone brings it up on the board. Do you feel like being from Colorado? gave you a little bit of an advantage as far as experience up at the higher elevations of Flagstaff. It had to have. I mean, I know that when I go down an elevation, uh, humidity, obviously the air pressure and how the discs fly, but also the humidity in the hands being sticky all the time and having to deal with that. I feel like them coming up here and not having that feeling and having to create that feeling through dirt or, you know, obviously the air is a whole nother thing. I came from 5,000 feet. Um, so I went up 2000 feet and we had people that came up 7,000 feet. Mm-hmm. So, um, but also the terrain, um, Terry, you were out there, there, you know, there's all kinds of these little granite moon rocks and then there'll be some metamorphic piles and I'm tripping and mo- and I'm so used to that in Colorado. I think a lot of people are used to playing in green grass parks and it's a, it's a whole different game. Um, and you have to play expect, you know, playing either, you know, your disc, your disc probably isn't going to skip because it's going to hit a rock as opposed to in grass, it's you know always going to skip. So I do think I had several advantages. That's one of the experiences I remember from Flagstaff is almost having to replace every disc in your bag yes. at the end of the week because they were so torn up other than I think the snowball, which was a little bit more grassy, mm-hmm. but every one of the other courses was, was some sort of rock. And you just or glass or glass. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. Yeah, there was one course that was just covered in broken glass. But it your your discs just were they never flew the same after that. So they got shredded. And I saw especially like Dave throwing an eleven time. I saw some really beautiful discs out there on the course, <laughs> and just like oh, you know, I took a couple new rocks and broke them in over the course of those weeks because I threw an eleven time when I first got there and just smack you know just even putters even just putting on a basket can just destroy a disc in a you know in a minute if it hits the ground so it's an interesting terrain now uh along you know what dave was throwing and and discs and whatnot i was informed by dave that he feels like the world's was stolen from him because (laughs) a frisbee what went missing uh he left it yeah yeah, an eco star now let's let's get the story straight he left an eco star destroyer out on the course while practicing one night and then the next day even though someone said they found it and maybe turned it in it it wasn't there but he has his his version is that the disc was stolen and therefore the world championships was stolen from him now I didn't have a problem telling Dave he's he's crazy uh, when we were back at the house for that. Um, but clearly, like you said, you got to make these adjustments. Did you do you bring extra discs? Do you uh, do you did you pack a different bag even at all? You know, knowing some of this, um, you know, terrain. Yes, absolutely. So quick shout out to my sister. She caddied the entire five days. She wow. worked her tail off and I'm giving her a shout out because I carried backups. So <laughs> I had, you know, my main destroyer that I threw a lot. I put a backup in there that had the exact same stability because if I destroy this on a rock during the round, I need a backup. And I did mm-hmm. that for, you know, I think I had 
like sets, like three wraiths, three bosses, three destroyers, <laughs> yeah. several, but additional ones that were the exact same disc because I was so afraid of, um, and it happened where I'll, disc, I'll pick it up and it's just wonk, got a chunk hanging off of it, put it in, grab out the other one and it's, you know, continue as, as usual. So, but I, that, that destroyer, man, I was even offering him, <laughs> I was even offering him some, I was like, Hey man, I got some in my van. If you, you know, like, it's like, no, but I get it. It's like the perfect one. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. So I guess he threw it on hole 17 at, um, Thorpe, Thorpe. practicing Heiser yeah. left it in the trees. Uh, someone got it out of the trees, left it on the tee pad and then he went at six o'clock in the morning and it was no longer on the tee pad. So when we were starting our round, he was about to go start talking to all the homeless people and start <laughs> digging through their stuff because he thinks one of them took it. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, thinking, their top priority yeah. is an EcoStar Destroyer. They don't care about your Frisbee. Like, you know, he's going to start digging. Like, uh, oh, my gosh. Yeah, it, it was all part of the... Uh, the Dave and and his caddy Dan, uh, the, the the Dan experience. Chronicles, yeah, the caddy chronicles <laughs> that I got every night, uh, and and walking yeah. around and whatnot, it was it was crazy. Um, you know, when you're talking about these discs, a lot of players did mention lightweight or flippy, you know, or just overall beat up. What was your, you know, kind of your main angle at going at it? Was it the same disc but lighter? Was it the same disc just super beat up, or were was it just a, a swap of discs entirely to a different model? What was what was your game plan? So um, I don't tend to mess with lighter too much, although I did have a few Blizzard bosses um, that I, I toyed around with while I was there, just messing around. I never threw them in competition. I go max weight everything. Um, but I beat them in, so my stability, you know, they're probably under max weight now because I've got discs in there that are 10 years old or whatever. Um, but so this is what I tell everyone is when you go to elevation, when people come to Colorado and they're like, I've never played at elevation. So before you go to the course, go out, you know, go take your all your discs out to a field and start with your putters and throw your putters because whichever one used to fly straight doesn't fly straight here. So figure mm-hmm. out which one does and then build your putters and then you move up to your mid ranges. Um, cause here that mid range that used to be straight is going to hyzer out. You're going to have to move instability to less stable. So I tell them to find the straight one. Once you figure out the straight one, then you can build your understable, your overstable or your, your rollers from there. And then just move up fairways all the way up to, you know, I, and I had to switch my destroyers just were, everything was hyzering out. Even my flippy destroyers were still hyzering out. So I actually went down to a wraith. I even brought some other, you know, older stuff, a shrike in there just in case I needed it. But, um, one of the things I noticed is a lot of putts, um, they don't glide like they used to. Yep. So I can see making a modification there as well. A lot of my putts also were hitting the cage and they felt good. I was telling my sister, like, that one actually felt really good. I thought that one was in. And many of the ones that felt good just right into the cage and it's just the air. It just doesn't glide like it does. So um, modifying that to be a little higher yes yeah, let, let me follow up on that because that was again an observation that i had thought about during our our daily recap show do you feel like a, a firm spin putter that could maybe either just put a little more on it had an advantage this week or do you feel like somebody that has a loftier putt that maybe had to just i'll say loft it more you feel like one style or another you know can combat that that lack of glide better um 
That's a tough question because you have to factor in the fact that it was windy the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, if I say, well, I give the advantage to the lob putter because, the, you know, they have, a, they're more likely to get it into the basket. They're also lobbing into that wind. Mm-hmm. So it was a little tricky. I have both putts. <clears throat> I think everybody thinks I'm a lob putter and I do lob nose down putt. That's my normal putt, but I worked hard on a spin putt and I, anything from like 50, I can do it from close as well, but I, my point is I relied on that a lot when I was just trying to get my disc near the basket um, or I, I can also run that. So for me, I used both, but I I would have to give this time the advantage to the lob putter just because of the fact that that terrain is so ugly and there's hills that the spin putters being off and catching the cage tended to roll a long ways. Mm. Whereas the lob putters, a missed putt, mine would hit the cage and they're under the basket and I could... I could just tap them in. So I didn't, I thought about it. I think, you know, I didn't bogey much and I didn't three putt the entire, I missed some putts for sure, but I didn't three putt the entire tournament. Um, and I also made more jump putts outside circle putts in the first round than I did all of last year's worlds. Um, <laughs> okay. So is that a testament to uh, good being good this year or, or uh, not needing to work as hard last year? I mean, what does that say? Cause we could interpret that like 10 different ways. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'll just kind of leave it <laughs> at me. Um, I missed a lot of jump putts last year. In fact, okay. I only made one. Uh, and this year, as soon as the tournament started off, I made two in the first round. I was like, okay, don't think about that anymore. Um, wow. Okay. Okay. And and I remember after you guys had each played Little America, again, doing some of the comparisons, I think you did. Did you shoot 19 under in the two rounds or did you shoot? Uh, the first two rounds, I just remember you and Kale, we either tied or one stroke apart. Yeah. Okay. You shot a nine under during the first round. And then in the third round, you came back and I think you shot a, yeah, you shot a 10 under Kale went, uh, 10, 10 and you went 10, nine. So that's, that's that scoring separation, at least at little America that definitely wasn't really there in terms of all the top scores were pretty much right at that nine, 10, maybe 11 range. Right. Yep. And then I was surprised that the move was made by me and Kale at Thorpe. Um, I just had this feeling that I was going to make the move at Little America. Mm -hmm. And it was that fourth round after Thorpe that blew me away because I thought it was harder to score there. I thought it would be harder to make a move. Um, But that's where we created the separation. That was strange. Yeah. Now, now that it's all said and done, now that you're champion, and I I may have asked you this during the week, I don't recall, but do you have a f- preferred course? Do you have a favorite course? I know you're just talking about scoring separation, but you know if if you could only play one of those two courses because you're up there for vacation and you only had time for one round, which which of the two would you play? <sighs> Depends how hot it is. Um, I, <clears throat> it depends on who I'm playing with and if I'm playing for money. If I'm playing for money. I would play Little America because it gives me the advantage because of the distance. Uh-huh. But if I'm playing for fun, I would probably go to Thorpe. I really enjoy those lines. Kale and I were always making this joke about we call it the true line because him and I were taking uh, we're taking the true lines. You, you have a lot of gaps there and you have a lot of options, but there's generally one way that's pretty obviously the way it was designed. Mm-hmm. But it's a hard shot. And a lot of people were getting crafty and trying to figure out how to bypass it. And so we just kept throwing, we're like, take the true line. And <laughs> and you know, we were both doing these weird flip up through the gaps and everything. But um, I really enjoy the true line. I really enjoy just seeing a hole and seeing how it's meant to be played and playing it that way. Whereas a little America, 
I mean, I like to smash as well, but that's more Colorado style par four golf. Uh, and when it was all sudden done, speaking of smashing, if I recall, uh, I was hanging out on Sunday, which was the day of the field events, and a, a gentleman came up to me. Uh, I believe he's from the UK. I forget his name, and he was playing MA50. And he told me, he goes, yeah, I, I did the distance competition. There's only a little time left. I think I've got a good chance. I threw 518 or was it 518 or 532, whatever it was. He goes, yeah, and I threw the same as I threw the same as Joe Revere in, in MP40. I'm like, dude, if you think somebody else in MA50 should be throwing past you and Joe Revere, like I'm going to have a talk with that person. So was it, I'm sorry, was it 518 or 532 that you had thrown? It is. It was 518. So okay. an M. Through 518 as well. Uh, uh, an AM50. I don't have him in front of me. Wow. I should look him up now. But an uh, yeah, an MA50 guy, I believe out of the UK, uh, through 518. That's and a he's hell like, of a throw. that's as far as Joe Revere. And, I'm, and he was worried about getting beat. I'm like, you better not get beat. <laughs> like throwing 518 out there. Yeah. And, and especially if Joe is throwing that yeah. in, uh, in MP40. So, um, and it was a tricky win. And again, it was for us, it was that right to left. Um, yeah, you know, that wind coming from the south, the southwest, and so we all had pretty much the same wind, and it was not a good distance wind. That's so what I had heard. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's what I had heard. And, and as always, it always feels like you know, unless you have literally a thousand feet in every direction, uh, it's almost impossible to really set up for a perfect, yeah. you know, wind, you know, field throwing event out there at a world championships. It's just there's usually a limitation or two. So for sure. And there's uh, something to be said for who can throw the farthest in any wind anyway. So correct. Yeah. I mean, let's be real. Like you just said, if you, you may not have had a great wind while well, plenty of other people didn't either. So yeah. you found a way to, to, to manage through it. And then uh, how you have two world titles here. How much, how much do the world titles mean? I don't want to sound too obvious, but world titles compared to all the other wins, you have 148 career wins, two of those being world titles. What what does that mean to you? And and are you out for any specific titles? You know, oh man. Again, I feel like it goes back to that motivation. I don't know where it comes from. Where, where does that come from? Because my goal had always been, I want to win a world championship. I want to win a world championship. And I was so determined and driven and hours and hours and hours. And, and that was in the back of my mind of like, that's my ultimate goal. When I achieved that goal, I thought, well, that's it. I did it. I can, you know, I can slow down now. And it didn't happen. The drive just got stronger and the fire. I was like, I can do this again. And so, uh, you know, it happened again. So <clears throat> I would love to win an MPO, you know, pro tour event or an elite series used to be an end tier event. Um, I got really close at Maple Hill a couple times, mm-hmm. um, but it didn't happen. That that would be great. But honestly, I the monkey's off my back. I've accomplished everything that I could ever dream of. And and if I get injured and can't play anymore, um, man, I had a great time and I had a great run. And until until the you know the fire goes away or my wife says I have to stop, then I just don't see it going away. I, I still on my way to work and. You know, if if it's sunrise and I have ten minutes, I'll stop and putt because why why would I use time in any other way than trying to get better? <laughs> I, I I can't imagine your wife is too upset when you come home with a sixty three hundred dollar check. Yeah, that really helped, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
mean? You're just like, like honey, like, I'm home with this trophy. Yeah, yeah. Where's the check? There are so <laughs> yeah. many events where you come home with a two or three or four hundred dollar check, and it's like, all right, I I broke even. Woohoo! This was a great weekend. <laughs> this is one of those events where it's like, no, I made some money here. Like this is yeah, this, this is a real. profit. This goes back to that whole thing about could disc golf be sustainable in my life? And man, that's a lot of money for me. And as a teacher, you know, I'm, I'm, teachers know how much money they make and it's not a whole lot. So when you have something like a paycheck like that, I mean, it's like winning the lottery. Um, the lottery just pays my taxes from last year. This time. <laughs> what do you teach? I teach robotics. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And I, yeah, I taught science for, like 10 years and I switched over about 10 years ago to robotics. And so I do, I, yeah, I have legit competitive robotics teams. I took mm-hmm. six teams to the world championships for robotics last year in Orlando. Uh, Is that where I, it was right? Uh, no, Texas, no, Texas, uh, Texas. Uh, we have Dallas, a local, Texas. we have a local team here at the high school right up the road that my son is about to join called, I think they're called fear here in Wisconsin uh, from Nicolay okay. high school. And they, they went to the world championships as well. So I I, I, oh, awesome. I briefly followed a little bit. I'll be more into it come next year yeah. when he's into it as he's going into high school next year. So it's, uh, yeah, there, there's exciting. so many parallels to, there's so many parallels. The funny thing is last year, the robotics game, cause it's a new game every year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we use metal and motors and you know, it's real robotics, but the game changes last year's game was disc golf. And so they had these little foam discs that they had to shoot into these disc golf baskets. Um, that's there's, you know, the rule book is, really complicated, but that's essentially it. So my kids built flywheels and catapults and, um, it was so cool, um, to see, to see him do it. But there's so many, there's so many parallels to be drawn when I'm talking to my kids as a coach. And I, t- you know, I start talking about who, who I think is going to be good. Mr. River, who do you think is going to be the best team? And I just say, who's working, you know, look, let's look around here. Who's, who's working the hardest, who shows up every day and works the hardest. Who's, who's putting in more work than everyone else. And that's who's going to, and every year it's the same thing. I used to coach basketball as well. <clears throat> and when my kids go, Hey, Mr. Beer, do you think it's okay if I come in and shoot? In my mind, I'm like, you are driving yourself to be better. Like you are winning. You, absolutely. You can do that. So there's many parallels to be drawn between anything that people do to practice and determination to get better. And what we do with disc golf. I feel like if you're not going to be a teacher or a disc golfer, you could be a motivational speaker. <laughs> I'm ready to go out in my backyard Let's go and play, Johnny. practice putting right now. It's like, what am I doing yeah. here talking to you? <laughs> yeah, like I'm wasting my time. Come on. Come on. Let's go. Uh, we know where our skill sets are. They could be They're better. better. No, <laughs> no. They could That's be, but they won't be. Uh, I did commit. I, I put on uh, Twitter somewhere that after being at the Worlds and seeing, again, a bunch of fellow Masters players and me used to being um you know playing 30 35 40 events a year way back in the day uh yeah of course i have an itch and an urge to go out and play and uh, i'm going to commit to getting a few rounds in this week so uh thanks to tom mcmanus i want to throw this out there uh who i had a great time with as well this week it's adam keen out of the uk originally from malaysia uh tom said i played with him in a practice round and yes he can bomb so he's the gentleman that had uh matched your score and again ma50 uh, is where he was. So super. That is impressive. so awesome. Shout out to that guy. Nice yeah. rip, dude. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, awesome. very cool. Now, you know, one, again, one thing Felberg had said is, is he's collected a few masters worlds himself. He said, I'm excited. I want to try and win a worlds in each of the divisional categories that he's eligible in. 
is, you know, the, the MP50 then would be MP55, MP60, so on and so forth. Funny enough, Sayananda, after she took down a silver event uh, a few months ago, said, yeah, in her longtime legacy, that's a thought she's had about winning, yeah. you know, worlds at all these different levels and age brackets. Yeah. Is that like, is that a specific goal you've ever thought of or, or not so much? Yeah. And I, yeah. And I feel like I could, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but talking about masters and as people get older and, you know, the disc golf pro tour being only for young kids and, and with all the crazy stuff going on in this world, when I, when I, you know, was getting better at playing disc golf, Peter Shive, um, he -hmm. passed away recently, but, but he's someone that I remember talking to him and saying, you know, you're 72 years old and you're still ripping a disc. Like it's not just that he's still winning tournaments, but this guy's healthy and, and, Mm -hmm. 30 years older than, than me. And he was still crushing discs. So, you know, I think winning those world titles is a lot, but this is an activity that we can do for a long time. And I think having masters worlds um, and even masters divisions at tournaments is so important because I really loved this sport from the beginning because I knew it wasn't going to take a really bad physical toll and I could do it for a long time. And now, you know, when they, when they originally started separating worlds and masters worlds and, I just kind of like, man, this is um, this is a big deal to a lot of people. And I hope I hope and I, and I know that people aren't, you know, getting a million views on YouTube because of us old guys playing at Thorpe. Um, I don't know if it's about that, but I feel like we've put a lot of time into this game and growing this game. And um, it's something I want to do forever. And absolutely, I want to continue to win world titles now that I've won, two, And now that I know what it takes and I know I have what it takes you know, if I got 30 more years, I want to win 30 more world titles. Are you, are you going to give your ch- yourself the chance for an MPL world title? Are you going to play pro worlds or even maybe any of the more elite series events? Or have you kind of set yourself? I know locally you still play MPO, but nationally, do you feel, I know you can compete, but do you feel like you want to try or do you, or is MP MP 40, a more appealing division? This year, I'm only going to play two MP40s. I, I played an A tier a few weeks ago to get ready for Worlds, and then I'll play Worlds. So I, in my mind, I'm not even an MP40 player. I'm still an MPO player. Um, and I do want to compete at those tournaments. The big problem for me is the timing. Mm-hmm. Um, I only get seven days that I can't be at school during the school year. And so there's several A tiers where I have to take a Friday off. And my my son got sick last year and it just, my days are gone. So I can't, you know, like USDGC, I qualified this year. I can't go because one, I would show up and have to compete for a week. That's one week of school, but I would need to practice. So I feel like I need to get there. Um, and now my days are gone. Is that the one event that I want to play every year? Um, and I would love to, I, especially USDGC because I think I can compete there. Um, that really suits my game. Um, so I would love to, it just, is hard to work it in the schedule. Um, my goal is to try to hit some of these disc golf pro tour events, but it's harder and harder to get in um, since I'm not on the tour. Um, my plan though, because of the way my game has been getting better and as long as it continues to feel better and better, the next year I'd like to see myself do a little mini tour. I would love to go compete in some of these bigger events, but not just one because then there's so much pressure on that one. I want to do like five or six in a row because then I can really get an idea of, you know, I might have just a good tournament and do really well or I might have a bad tournament and do really bad, but I don't want that to be a good, you know, idea of exactly what I think I can do. What and I think about a oh, worlds this year now for many 
years, almost, well, our entire playing career, Worlds took place in either July or August. August yeah. Almost usually a pro, pro was almost always August. Almost. August. Yep. And then it's always it, right when school starts. Yeah. And then, and then, yeah, usually like the first or second week or maybe even the third week of August. Now in at least two out of the last five years when it's been at Smugs, it's basically, you know, right around that Labor Day weekend, definitely bringing a lot of schools into play. So it's pushing yeah. it back even more. This is the, you know, as late as it's going to be. There again, I, I just have to assume that immediately excludes the possibility of you being there, knowing you're probably a week or maybe even two into school already, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And my, you know, I love my principal. My last two have been so awesome, and they're so supportive. And but I only get so many sick days, and even yeah. if they say use them, go again. You know, what if my kids get sick, or what if I get COVID, and I just so I, I can't. Yep. Same thing with U.S. Masters this year. Everybody's like, where were you? There's a lot of money in it. And it you know, the, I didn't play the courses, but everybody was telling me it suits my game there. And that was the last week of school. Um, mm. I don't, you know, My principal said, well, if you really want to go, we can try to make it work. But I know that that creates a headache. I was switching rooms from, you know, it's just so much more complicated. <clears throat> so it's I, difficult. But. I don't know if they've announced the dates next year for Worlds yet. I know it's going to be in Virginia. At the, I, I believe August, but I I could be making that up. Okay, uh, because I was going to say, with it being on the East Coast, you can probably expect a later Worlds again, because that's where the tour swings around, oh, yeah. and I, I haven't seen it. I feel like I would love to see the, the Worlds be maybe closer to the Midwest, or even on the West Coast, and have it earlier in the season. You know, have have it be, maybe flip-flop Worlds and uh, uh, Champions Cup sometime or however that however that would work just based on the way the tour flows through the uh uh the country yeah Yeah. i don't know i I don't know if it matters for worlds or not if they just always going to kind of keep it end of august i was looking right now i'm not seeing a date for uh for mpo worlds masters worlds emporia next year yeah which <laughs> made some people mad, which I'm happy about. <laughs> uh, are, are you saying that the, um, the, the opportunities at a place like Country Club, for instance, really uh, suits, I don't know, you? <laughs> that's, exactly, that's exactly right, Terry. <laughs> I like and it. I, I think, you know, not, yeah, and Jones as well. I haven't played Joan, Jones Gold yet, but okay. um, I feel like if someone can throw – 518 it might give them a little advantage of people that can only throw 400 well ring up that ma50 and we'll talk <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh yeah so that's that's what we'll see i don't have the dates in front of me i was just kind of quickly trying to google but i just see that they were awarded and some other stuff so i don't i'm sure those dates are set but um yeah so those are a couple of other big ones and then i just think about like what's in the summer versus what isn't for you and, and you know in terms of some of those big events i want to backtrack just for a moment when, when I was at the uh, the Flying Disc Museum, can uh, you know talk on Thursday night? At one point, there was a conversation about how a a disc throwing or a disc uh, propulsion arm like type machine. of machine was built many years ago, and and we've heard Simon and MVP also kind of have that conversation as to something possibly being built like that. Obviously, with your your history and your background, wh- wh- where why don't we have a perfected one by now? And and how much have you thought about it? 
this last year I've thought about that a lot because my kids had to build robots to literally do that all year long. And from a physics standpoint, the hard part is getting to mimic a human is so much more complicated than we realize. We can get these discs to fly at the same speed through a catapult or um, a flywheel, you know, just a, something that spins. And when the disc feeds into it, like a, a, a pitching mm-hmm. machine, yep. except that's a double flywheel. So imagine just a single flywheel mm-hmm. and that'll get it spinning, but it just doesn't mimic the way humans throw discs. Um, I think it's getting the disc to spin at an angle, you know, the nose angle, but also on a hyzer or anhyzer or flat angle at the correct speed. Um, I think it is so much more complicated than, than I think people realize. And it, I feel like it would take a disc golfer or someone that is into robotics and disc golf to mm-hmm. even want to do that because what's the motivation? What's, you know, a lot of people are motivated by money. And so they want to build something, put a lot, you know, they're going to put years into something. Maybe it's going to make them some money. Although I think I would love to see a machine like that built that could throw consistently. And then let's get the, um, the numbers that are on the discs to be a little bit more accurate based on how it behaves because even different runs of the same disc can be totally different discs. Well, uh, to be uh, all my next obvious then question was going to go to, you know, how much do you internally or, or maybe vocally uh, laugh and, or roll your eyes at disc numbers, uh, flight numbers is because that's all marketing. Right. It's all, it's all marketing. Mostly. And, um, honestly, it only a couple of years ago, I didn't, I couldn't even tell you what those numbers meant. Um, I, I don't pay attention to them. I don't, I just throw the discs and then I can tell you kind of how they fly. So I'm not gonna, you know, it's all marketing and these companies have to make money and I, I actually appreciate it. And I think it is important to know, you know, at least it gives you a basis to talk about when someone goes to buy, buy a disc. He's like, yeah, maybe don't pick up that 13 speed. Even though that number doesn't mean that much to us, you're not going to be able to throw that disc. And you say, because you can't throw it hard enough, you have to get the disc to get to that speed in order for it to behave like it's supposed to. Yeah, the big I, thing that we need to talk about in terms of engineering and design thinking is the baskets. We need baskets that can catch. Okay, okay. Mm. Floor, floor is yours. Let's hear it. What, 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 is, what is currently right? And what is currently wrong? Uh, That's a tough question. Uh, I can tell you what's wrong is look at these baskets that are spitting out good putts. That's wrong. Um, (laughs) But spitting and, and good are two could be two subjective terms here, right? Sure. But I've here's, here's what I'll say. I've never seen a basket not catch. Well, I can't say never rarely seen a basket, not catch a disc. I've seen chains, not catch discs. The basket itself, though, that rarely they do they come out once they're in. And what are we aiming for? Are we aiming for the chains or are we aiming for the basket? Um, good question. <laughs> so may, maybe we start with, and so I actually had a disc golfer in my class, in my engineering class this year, and he tried to tackle this. And we started really thinking about this. Maybe it's not the chains. Maybe we need to rethink this whole thing. I, I think we should start with the goal. The goal is... This thing should catch good putts. You know, if I'm a three-point shooter and I sh- shoot a good three-point shot, I don't want there to be a chance because of the netting is a little different than the one that it was last weekend that it, you know, it might pop out. To me, that takes away fairness. Um, the competitive spirit kind of mm-hmm. goes away. 
So whatever the solution is, it needs to catch good pots. Um, maybe maybe we need to think about rubber or some sort of mash or some sort of um, mechanism that um, once it's in, it closes. Or I don't really care. That's hard, though, because that goes back to the sound of the chains. I mean, I played disc golf for so long and the sound of the chains is ingrained in my brain as part of the game. But I wonder if we need to start rethinking, you know, rethinking that a little bit. There, there's some putts that I've seen recently, especially in the last couple of years, that you, you could argue it was too slow, that it was too fast, it was too nose up, it was too flat. It was too, Angle. come on. Mm-hmm. come on here. But there's a point where we can go, that was a good putt. That should have stayed. And we need to make a catchy mechanism that catches that, whatever that is. If you could somehow uh, simplify it, I have my answer, but if you could simplify it down to um, one particular, I don't want to say style. Um, when I think of a missed putt, I think of the first thing that for me that comes to mind is speed. Right. There's like, like you just said, there's nose angle. There's maybe, you know, the whatever other plane there is in terms of, uh, of hyzer and hyzer or flat. And then there's speed. I, I think those are maybe the three main variables, right? In terms of the disc, how it's coming in. Mm-hmm. What do you feel like? Which, which of those components, if any, frustrates you more than another? Because, yeah, I'll, I'll leave the question to you there. No, that was a really good question. I know I'm a no- nose down putter by nature. It's something that I wish I could get rid of, but I can't. It's uh, when I putt comfortably and it felt like it's going to go perfectly in the basket, it has the nose down. And I get a lot of spit outs, and that's my own fault. And I understand that. I know Ricky, I see him get some spits as well. That I, That's because it's a nose down putt. But with that said, I think people should putt however they need to putt to be comfortable. I don't, I'm of the belief that I shouldn't have to adjust my putt because the basket changes. I want to putt how I feel comfortable. And, and if the way I putt is what is putting it in the center, then I think that's what's right. I guess, I guess what I'm trying to kind of say is, we should have. We don't. We, we don't want a basket that's going to catch everything in terms of a bad putt. But what is a bad putt? I think what you were saying, if it's going way too fast, you know, if someone hammers it in there, there's going to be some ricochet off the pole. I wouldn't mind if that spits out. In fact, there's times where I've been like, "Well, this is probably going to spit because I have to throw it really hard or something." Um, but I, you know, whatever that good putt is should stick in the basket. I think slow, flat putt um with no angle at all is that the best putt i don't know i think that that's why i say it is it's it's such a funny question maybe it's even something i should take on is is line up you know i don't know five or ten videos of specific putts and then say which one of these do you do you define as good because what i think is a good putt you may totally disagree with in the first place regardless of it going of it staying in or not I, I may look at a putt and, you know, just the style in which it comes in. I, I'm like, well, I don't I don't think that's that good of a putt in the first place. So that's where I think it becomes such a subjective argument as to what you're saying is a good putt. And you have such an interesting perspective, you just said, where you don't feel like you should have to change your putt based on the basket. And a lot of others would say, myself included, may say, well, aren't some of the variations currently to the basket 
kind of like the variations you get to a course. Some are going to be treed, uh, have a ton of trees. Some are going to be open. Some are going to have a wind. Some are at elevation. Some have baskets around, or I'm sorry, trees around the baskets. Like there's a million variables with every course. And the the basket in which you're putting at, some would say is, well, that's one of the components of that course and you should play accordingly. Sure. I I can see that perspective. Which I can see that perspective and I respect it. But sure. if, a, if a golfer, if a golfer taps in a golf ball into a hole, he doesn't want to say there's a 50% chance that that's going to shoot back out. Mm-hmm. I you know, agree. It's in. And so that's what I mean is that an, a make should be a make, not, you know. And I'm kind of feeling along the lines of like the chains are almost our, our pin and the basket yeah. is the hole. So uh, like if, if, if a golfer hits the pin, that doesn't necessarily mean it should drop straight into the basket. But yes, I, but I, but I understand. I mean, when I look at putts and I look at every player's putts to me and, and may, maybe it's recency bias own Scoggins to me has the perfect putt. It's not fast. It's a little wobbly. It's kind of coming in. And I rarely, rarely have seen her putt spit out. Just the way her putts flutter a little bit. They're not super spinny. They're not like a loft putt, but they just wobble. They hit chains and they fall in. Almost everyone. There's the FPO version of of Yeti's putts, right? And look look at what his results are. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, like to me, that feels like a perfect putt. And so if I were to, I'd have to go back because I honestly can't think of a single Omskagen spit putt. So if anyone on the board can can, can point <laughs> us to one where I look at it and go, oh, geez. Uh, but it, that's you're actually right. a it good is, example because if there's people that never putt, then there's got to be something going on there. Yeah. I, I mean, but look at Rick. Rick putts 100 miles an hour and, and either nose down or sometimes, you know, with some angle. And he gets a lot of them that go straight through. I, you know, yeah. there there are clearly styles that I feel like are are more prone to it. Even if they are a good putter or they the the mechanics look good and feel good and feels like it should go in. I mean, there that was a ledgestone I remember a number of years ago. Where just it felt like every time Ricky threw one anywhere near the chains, yeah. it it inexplicably somehow went right through. But and he's I'll putting say, a million miles an hour. There were there there was a year or two at ledgestone with the baskets were a little, they were all the chains were connected to the bottom and all the chains would sure. sway. And with the speed yeah. that Ricky putted, like it's almost like the red sea would part. And it's like, <laughs> cool. Guess what? You're hitting that pole and you're coming straight <laughs> back. Right. <There> goes Rick's <laughs> <laughs> and the way you're like the way Rick putts nose down, coming down to up, like his would hit high and just straight back at you. And he always plays with I dead get, center. I, I, yeah. But that's my point is like, I feel like nobody's going to go tell Ricky, Hey, you need to change your putt. You know, like you do what you do. He is such an incredibly good putter. He shouldn't have to change anything. He's got it hitting the target exactly where he wants to hit the target. It just spits a lot. And to me, he's done his job. And now I think we need a catching mechanism that can do it. Um, And I totally get the other arguments. Like I'm I'm listening and I understand them, (laughs) but I just don't ever think a good putt should spit and we got to fix it. Uh, and I am not, I am not disagreeing with you at all. Just to be clear, like I, there are plenty of times you see a putt yeah. and you're like, Oh my God, I watched that nine times and or 10 times. You're like, wow, I feel like that absolutely should have stayed in. And, yeah. and there is just this fluke factor. 
And it feels yeah. like it can be literally on any basket. Some are more prone than others, but yeah. you can have this craziness. I will also say, though, as we've learned on the tour and we talked about a few weeks ago, sometimes when you see a putt, especially as a commentator or working in the in the control room, you see a putt that looked perfect. And then when you go back and watch it and replay and we show it on the network, it's like, well, okay, no, that was actually a lot higher than we realized. Or, or we that see it was, from a different angle. Yeah. Or, but yeah. Paul Macbeth is another guy who I, I rarely, I rarely see spit outs from his putts. I don't know what it is, yep. but I don't see, a, I don't see a lot of Paul spit outs. Um, I see, I see no own ones. Every once in a while, Paul will have one that will come back at him, but you know, he just, it's just, they're lucky. Yeah. I mean, clearly that's what Paul is. It's those titles. Yeah. <laughs> As we'll talk about him in a few minutes for the, for the elite series. He just luckily won. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, it, when it comes to give everyone, if you could, a little uh, overview of of Colorado golf, which has been put more on the map in the last few years, I feel like with coverage at the 303 and a few of the other events, uh, being there for the the um, the match play just last year when we were all up there with the Pro Tour, uh, give everyone a little overview of of what you think of of your scene and and what it's like to play in Colorado. You know, I love playing in Colorado. The style is quite a bit different. Um, you see a lot of up and over. And it's not the course designer's fault. It's the nature of where we live. Um, we don't have a lot of big trees here, especially when you get on the front range in the Denver area. Um, from Fort Collins to Colorado Springs, there's just not a lot of big trees. There's not a lot of parks. It's dry. Um, so my, you know, my point is you see these guys, Aaron and, and Eagle and me, we're looking up and over to see if there's a line because we're so used to throwing that way. Um, so you kind of got to get used to it. The mountains are great. Um, there's some really good golf that, you know, is getting put in <clears throat> up the highway 285. There are so many courses in this area in Fort Morgan and Fort Collins and Colorado Springs. And the scene is, is crazy. I know for a long time we had the largest disc golf club in the country, probably in the world mile high. I don't yep. know how many members there were, but the courses are full. There's tags, you know, every night of the week somewhere, it's a huge scene. Um, and there's tons of good kids that are, you know, getting better. I might be playing MP40, MP40 in the local scene, maybe here eventually, but <laughs> it's a great scene and I want to stick with it as long as I can. Um, I, I would love to start running, you know, some good events too. I've, I've um, played a lot, you know, of events and I would, I'm kind of getting to the point where I think it'd be cool to start running maybe a big junior event, similar to what they're doing with the Rocky mountain women's or, you know, something like that. So there's a lot of growth here. Um, a lot of good people. I mean, you that's, named a bunch earlier. I'm not going to lie. That's a little old man talk. <laughs> like I played my fair share. I wouldn't mind running them now, yeah, yeah, <laughs> which is amazing. My, great. We my, need people like that. My follow-up just- to that would be, <laughs> What what would you, you've obviously played in a ton of events and you've been successful at them and, and you've been, you know, uh, seen some various places throughout the country. What are some things that you would want to implement? What would, you know, what are you picking and choosing from and being like, hey, that was pretty cool. If I ran an event here, here's uh, something I'd incorporate. In my day, we had baskets that couldn't catch. Um, you know, I focus so much on the course. Um, when okay. I go to, you know, if I, if I rate what an event, what, what makes a good event, I, uh, I don't, I just by nature don't value, um, all the, the fluff and, you know, is there water? I'll bring my own water. I don't care. Well, there's not a bathroom. I don't care. You know, uh, well, I only care about the course. Um, mm. 
And I put so much into what the course is, the playability, the flow, the fairness. Um, when, when people say, how is the event? 95% of my answer is this, it's the course. The course is really what matters. Um, we've had events in Colorado where the fluff was amazing and the course wasn't good and some pros don't want to come back. Um, we've had tournaments where the courses were great and they do want to come back. So I, I, my opinion is that's the most important thing. I don't care about payout, players' packs, any of that. Um, I care about how good the course is. Um, and I know a lot more uh, tournament directors have been reaching out and asking me, Hey, can you go take a look at this hole and let me know what you think? And, and I actually really appreciate that. Not because it's me. I don't care about that at all. The fact that they're, they're asking someone else, Hey, you know, a second opinion on what do you think about this? Should we put the basket here? The fact that they're even doing that tells me that they're probably going to have a pretty good event because they actually care about, you know, they care about that course. And I know not everybody feels that way, but I just, love a good course. Yeah. That's interesting that you're, you have so much emphasis on that when for a lot of players, maybe who aren't as maybe just because they're not as competitive, like to know about the amenities, the extras, the, the, you know, the extracurriculars that are maybe even at night or off the course, or, you know, do they have a good players party or is there a band? Is there a fly mart? Like all of those types of things that can make an event more like a, a party or family reunion. And you're like, no, I, w- I want the nuts and bolts. I want where the competition is at. Let's, let's hone in on that. Do you feel yeah. as if there's, ever a bias because of your skill set that it's, it's hard, you know, to scale it back, realizing not everyone throws as far as you and, and whatnot. Is that tough to then like give the opinion back to them and say, okay, here's what I like. And, and here's what would actually be good for the, you know, the, the MA two division, like, cause those are all very different user bases. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I'm getting better at thinking about, cause I used to only think about, my division mm-hmm. and how far they can throw. And I'm getting better. You know, I was working with Kyle Mowdy recently when we were out there and, you know, and we kept, you know, saying about, well, I got this and this, and this is awesome. I think it's so great. And he's like, what about the FPO? And I was like, I didn't even consider it. Let's rethink this whole thing. So we'd have to go back and, you know, rewalk the whole thing. Um, and so I'm biased, but at the same time, I'm not selfish. So, you know, I like to like for the 303 open, you know, a local Robert Nichols and I did a lot of work on, you know, trying to help organize that course and kind of get it laid out. And that was one of the things, you know, we thought about and I don't have a big forehand, but I designed quite a few holes that Robert has a giant forehand and he's like, wow, you designed that, you know, I can reach that and you can. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was like, well, we had four forehand holes and we had 12 backhand holes and, you know, trying to, in terms of shot selection and disc selection, that's what I care about. You know, how many times did I throw a rock? How many times did I throw a driver? You know, how many times did I have to scramble, for example, or how many times was I? So I, I think that's important. And I don't want to be, I don't want to just make everything super long. You know, sure. I, I don't actually enjoy that. I would rather the more shots people are required to use, the better the course. The true yeah. line. Yeah. The true line. True line. Let's go, Kale. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, which is interesting too, because I think that's a challenge, and and you know, it's a challenge of all of the world's host teams now. Of who are they hosting? And even if it is all the pros, let's just say 
This was a 500-person Pro Masters Worlds, and the AM Masters were a different weekend. Even within the Pro Masters Worlds, you have everyone from yourself in MP40 all the way to, you know, uh, MP70 or MP80 players, which are just a totally different user base. They're professionals, but still a completely different skill set. And I think that's one of the toughest things for all worlds, especially as they get bigger, is how are you appropriately accommodating for all of the different skill sets? How are you challenging, you know, the players to the best of their ability on the best courses that you have to offer? And I I just think that's a really tall task. I ran an AM Worlds in 07. So here, 15 years later, it's even a bigger task than ever before. Did you think they did a good job in Flagstaff of doing that? Um, all I can say is from what I gathered, it seems as if they did. And so I, and I mean that in the most complimentary way from everything I heard. Now I didn't see every division play every course, obviously, but from what I gathered, and I know there were a few people that stated, if anything, I feel like maybe it was an MA 40 division stating that some of either their pars or one of their courses was a little too easy. And I guess I feel like, well, I'd rather see a course too easy than too hard for them personally, sure. because otherwise yeah. you're taking a, a, a two hour and 45 minute round and you're turning it into a four and a half hour round and everyone's hating it. Um, yeah. So if you're going to air personally, I'd rather see you air on the side of, of getting more birdies. That's just me from a, from a logistical standpoint, like keeping the tournament yeah. moving, you know, and not having five hour rounds. But the the feedback that I either heard directly or indirectly, it seemed as if they did a really good job of that. And that's, again, it's tough. You've got FA 70 women out there that are competing and, and then people like yourself, like it's a pretty wide spectrum. And that, yeah, really changes courses. I wonder, I've always thought about somehow, I don't know, different divisions and people and maybe people taking on a role of like being a course approver whatever i'm just verbalizing this for the first time so i'm not using the correct words but so a tournament would come up and they would say okay i need somebody from this division this division this division to meet me here on tuesday i need you to walk through and maybe they have to alter a couple things for each one of those divisions um there's been events that we've showed up to as open players and been like what the heck is going on sure like this is a disaster if if they had said, Hey Joe, can you do a quick one run through and see if there's anything that you might be wonk like might be wonky? I would have been like, you have to stop now. Like there's this is going to be a backup. This is confusing. This rule, this um, but they don't do that. So I, I just think it would really make events better if but well, we do not just open, but sure. You know, and every I, division. I feel as if um that's something Jay Jay is is probably screaming. Jay uh, Yeti Redding is probably screaming right now as he's watching or listening somewhere. Uh, that's something that he very much has pushed for, especially at our largest events, majors, uh, in in having kind of that crew or that person. And I know they've sent the likes of like a Sean Sinclair ahead back with the PDGA, and they do have some of those walkthroughs ahead of time for our biggest events. And I and I can think of even I think Jen Allen recently had gone somewhere. Uh, ahead of an event and you know her feedback was considered as well so i i think that you know we'll call it like an ambassador almost or a reviewer i feel as if that concept is becoming more and more common um sarah hokum often talks a lot about you know courses that are appropriate and they're not just the mpo course and then you know sometimes a shorter t for fpo you know randomly wherever like it it feels as is as the progression of the game is going forward 
we're getting there. It might be slow, but we're, I think we're getting where you're talking. But. And I'm sure I'm simplifying, but it feels like the PDGA representatives that come ahead of time tend to lean more towards rules and not necessarily, I mean, I'm sure there is some of it, like appropriate distances, appropriate course, but they're more or less looking at safety rules, like yeah, flow, flow, things like that. And maybe not necessarily as focused on, you know, is this, is this good for MA 60 or FA 60? Yeah. I'm sure there is some of that, but it would be nice to maybe have a few more eyeballs out there. Well, Joe, I'll ask you this. Um, again, a rumor that I had heard is that they had the course set up in a particular layout. I, I, I want to say Thorpe was set up in a particular layout for a, a warm-up event, maybe the tree bash. And then, um, and then the course was considerably different or in a different configuration for worlds. Did you hear any, and, and some, some people who played tree bash were upset. And my point was, well, clearly That's the point, yeah, maybe some of that stuff needed to be adjusted. Did you, did you hear anything of that? Of, of a I didn't hear anything about it when I, so I got there a week early. Uh, Hank Kerman and I went up there a week early to practice those courses. And at Thorpe, there were two baskets for every tee. Hmm. Um, and then they just removed one of the baskets, but it was, uh, uh, I'm colorblind, but I think it was like blue or something. And then white, the ones that we played on in the actual tournament. Okay. So I just played to the white baskets on every hole. I didn't, it was very clear to me. I had, I mean, it was confusing, but I had a map. Sure. Um, because there's different tees in Thorpe. I think Thorpe's like a 27 hole layout or something. And then we used 18, whatever. So mm-hmm. it was never, I thought it was very clear. And the same thing about little America, they did shorten hole two at little America. They moved the T mm-hmm. that's that Island with the rethrow over the pond. Yep. That was one that I practiced the long T because that's what they had said it was going to be. And the PDGA said, no, again, back to what we we're talking about. Cause they said, Hey, there's lots of different divisions that have to throw this. And we're not asking people to throw 400 feet over water. And so sure. they moved the team closer. And I thought that was a good move and they're absolutely right. You know, in, in that one, but I didn't hear about that. Okay, I it it again, um, you know, everyone has a different either reason or logic or excuse or story, and uh, it was something that I had heard at one point is, yeah. um, but that's my point is that's why you run warm up events is you you see, mm-hmm. um, hey, this hole is oh, here, I this had a huge that. backup, let's let's mitigate that because when you don't do that, then everyone says, didn't they test this? Why don't why don't we you know why don't we uh, why don't we try this ahead of time? So you, you got to make the adjustments if they're called for. So, When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, I get it. 
Joe, uh, it's been amazing having you. I don't, I don't believe it's been this many years before finally having you on to chat with us. But uh, thank you so much for joining us. Before we let you go, we want uh, you to give any any social media platforms, any ways that people could support you, uh, maybe some commemorative discs or, or releases, anything that they're doing, whatever it is, uh, tell everyone how they can find you and support you. You know, I'll have my world's disc for this year coming out. Um, I'll hope, hopefully be working with Manny Trujillo, um, incredible artist. Um, and those will come out and you can support me then. But other than that, my robotics team needs some money. So okay, uh, okay. I know that <laughs> Last year we had uh, Innova, uh, Discmania, Dynamic Discs, and MVP all help us out. We ended up with about $15,000 raised. Damn. Um, we spent way more than we actually raised, so we're trying to do better next year. The size of my team is doubling. <laughs> um, we're honestly making a run at Worlds next year. I've got some of the most that's, incredible that's incredible little kids that are doing things that are, it's blowing my mind what these kids are doing. So uh, I'm all in, in terms of helping them out. So um, I talked to um, Pete Cashin from dynamic discs at worlds and, and he's on board to help out. And so we're actually going to hopefully get some discs, maybe put some robotic stuff on them. We'll put it out on social media. So everybody can, you know, if you're, if you're wanting to get a couple, we'll work some different companies and get some different runs, but um, all that money is just being raised back into my club because, you know, each robot is about anywhere from like three to $4,000 and I'm expecting like 16 teams this year. Um, so we need the money. We need the money. So I'm here to raise money more for my club than I am for myself. Well, that's uh that sounds all too kind and selfless of you. Uh, and I guess what, what we should grow to expect, expect here. So, all right, Joe. Well, uh, I can't say enough. Congrats. It was uh, you were the clear front runner and favorite at this world. <laughs> Anyone who thought oh. otherwise is an idiot. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you, you know, you, you proved just that by your dominance all weekend. So, uh, but seriously, I, I appreciate the motivation that you didn't even know that you gave me. <laughs> Who can you motivate next year, Terry? I'll, I'll find somebody <laughs> no, that I can no, motivate me. Motivate me. I, I can give a side jab too, unintentionally. Well, seriously though, uh, the the chat board has absolutely loved having you. All of your uh, your frank and and honest and and uh, straightforwardness. It's been awesome. Thanks. Uh, our smashies are lucky to get to know you that much better, as are we. And uh, congratulations on one hell of a week. Uh, Two time champion over there in Flagstaff. And Joe, I look forward to the next time I see you out there on the tour somewhere. Thank you very much. It was great being here. I thought I missed my window in life to be on Smashbox. Oh, heck no. Anytime you need need to promote anything, chat, whatever, you're always welcome. We're here for you. The phone line's open. We'll take you. That's great. I really appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks a lot, Have a good night. Thanks. Good night. All right. Thank you. Yep. There it is. Oh, Alan Risley's on the board. Yeah, he's been on. Alan, you're not very good. Uh, so <laughs> next next year, I expect a win out of you. Uh, no. So Joe was able to make Kale a bridesmaid again. Yes. Because earlier in the season, it yep. was Philo yep. that took it down. And, and everybody expected Kale to walk into the division. Everybody, everybody expected him to walk into the division. And not you don't come and, into Joe's house and, and, and play well. And to be fair, I mean Kale has played well. He just yes. hasn't been able to 
get over the hump. Yet. I mean, he lost. He he took he Literally, took Philo to, to a playoff, playoff and, and, then and then loses to Joe Revere by one in Worlds. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna quite say you know Masters just ain't his thing yet. Uh, so um, always the bridesmaid. That's yeah, what that's what I'm saying. Obviously, he's and, gonna get a reputation. Yeah, so uh, so good to hear from Joe. Um, and if that guy doesn't want to teach, doesn't want to do robotics, doesn't want to play disc golf, doesn't want to tour, he can host a podcast for yeah, the love of God. Yeah, he could They're be doing that. So great. He's honestly yeah. one of my favorite guests so far. Yes. And we're, you know, oh, is that is that, a, is that your motivation to all the other guests that yes, step it up? Yes, that's right. Clearly, he's our favorite. <laughs> they want to yeah, earn. <laughs> They're all trying to earn Johnny V's favor. Uh, all right, let's let's go through uh, a couple of our divisions here at the World Championships. All right, I will. Uh, I'll I'll run through some of them here real quick. I'm actually on pdgalive.com, which is good. So obviously, we're talking to Joe, the winner. Joking about Kale taking second, third place, Matthew Blakely, uh, and in fourth place, Dave Felberg. That's your top four for MP40. FP40 owns Scoggin smashes, just running away with the field. It was it was close up until like the fourth, and then the semis, she kind of got a little bit, and then mm-hmm. Holly Finley taking second place. I know it's by 15 strokes, but there was a nine-stroke swing in the finals. Yeah. So it was a little closer than it felt, but own had a, she had it firmly in hand. I would say it would, it would have taken a little bit of anything for anyone else to win after a couple of rounds. Uh, third place was Jen Allen who crawled her way back up. She was a little bit further down the, the field yep. after the first round or two. And in fourth place, Stephanie Vincent. So that those are your top four for FP 40 MP 50. Chris Smith wins. Uh, Schwebe, who was on the board, couldn't quite get the victory. Uh, Four-stroke difference between first and second. And in third place, Ron Converse. Going over to FP50, truly crushing the field. Uh, Juliana Corver uh, beating Kim G and Nova P. So that that is, she shot 29. She was 28 strokes better than Kim. And I, I looked at it. She Almost didn't have to show up for the finals. <laughs> there was I was doing that math. I know she would have lost had she not shown up for the final. She would have lost by I think two or three strokes. So good, she decided to show. Good up. thing she showed what up. A, what a sport! <laughs> uh, uh, what a classy thing to do. Would have so. been, been fun just to be like the last with four holes to go. I'd be like anyone need a caddy? I'm, I'll caddy for you. <laughs> I, I've got this one wrapped up. MP fifty five Hank Kirwin over Patrick Brown. FP fifty five. Kelly Jenkins over Karen Sattler, MP60, Tim Keith over Doug Williams, FP60, Pamiflage, Renicky over Peggy Berry, MP65, Jay Gobrek over Jay Gary Dropcho. Let me make sure to get that right. There's mm-hmm. a lot of J's in there. Uh, FP65, Sandy Gast winning over Lori Cloyas Chupa, and MP70, Randy Beers over the immortal Dave Greenwell, Hall of Famer. Is Randy a Hall of Famer? I don't think he is. No. Randy picked up his first world title, and spoiler alert, uh, I don't want to say the best uh, post-champion interview that I got out of the 16, but his his was, he he was, uh, it was just truly amazing to talk to him. I'm super glad that I had the opportunity to, and that will be releasing probably in the next day. Uh, or so. And in MP80, 
Carlos Rigby crushing Spencer Rigby, <laughs> beating Eleanor Rigby. I don't know. All the Rigby's um, in third place was Daniel Pilatus. That, uh, that was a funny division. Uh, yes, a uh, whole lot of extra to that. If you watched any of the show throughout the week uh, that we did on the PDGA Live, you would see that uh, Carlos recruited his brother, Spencer, to come play. And then they also recruited the other gentleman, uh, Daniel. Daniel uh, played, showed up, played one hole, and then said, this is enough, I'm out. And uh, Spencer and Carlos played the rest of the week together. Uh, when it was all said and done, Carlos collecting his sixth world title and just truly, truly one of the highlights of my week was watching and interviewing and talking to Spencer and Carlos Rigby. What a, what a story. The, the, you know, the two of them are brothers and then everything that went along uh, with them in their lives and, and being brothers and their journey through disc golf and Spencer just finding disc golf three weeks ago and here playing in the world so that his brother could whoop him. It was, uh, it was just inspiring and very heartwarming. So uh, absolutely love seeing it. All right. I'm going to, I'll run through real quick on our am on our amateur side, uh, Sean to army who I did not get a chance to speak to, but Sean is your champion there in a playoff. It looked like, yes. And he uh, went head to head with Dan Vassar ended up taking it down. And then David Hurley tied Wesley hunt, for that third place podium spot. As we scroll down to FA 40, Jamie Williams took that down. They, there was a three way tie going into the final hole of worlds. Like you could barely draw it up any better. Jamie Williams, along with Christy Lewis and D Christensen. um, There was, I, I believe it was those three specifically that were tied with one another going to that final hole. And when it was all said and done, Jamie comes out on top. So congratulations to her. Uh, Billy Bauer beating out Eric Jubin and Lauren Barnhurst tying Yuha Lento for third in, excuse me, in the, I'm guessing that was the MA50, yes, MA50 division. Uh, I caught up with both Jamie and Billy. I also caught up with Margaret Patterson. Congratulations to her um, in the FA50 division. She uh, had this under control. For quite some time, Eve uh, uh, Janis uh, out of Estonia had suffered a fall during her first round uh, during a jump putt. She was obviously um, still competitive throughout the week and put on a good battle, but comes up in second. And Becky Purifoy. Purifoy. Sorry, I couldn't quite read that. I'm getting older myself, apparently. Uh, if you uh, hit Control Plus, it makes. Oh yeah, the, yeah. Uh, hey, there you go. I can just do that. <laughs> Jeez, give me some glasses that's, or that's spectacles. The old, that's the old man key command. <laughs> uh, Grace Cassidy rounds out the top four there in FA50. James Hustis, your champion. I caught up with him. Rod Roberts uh, and Trevor Tahones uh, rounds out your top three. And Matthew Cully was in fourth. That was in the MA55. Moving down to the FA55, uh, Deanna Worth, who I you'll hear from, edged out Edgy, uh, Edgy Angie Taylor and Arietta Masters uh, as those two tied for second, and then Kimberly Adams finished in fourth. Deanna, again, a woman who hasn't been playing that long. Awesome to see her uh, here taking down a world title. George uh, Bodoroga. That's actually correct. Uh, took it down handedly by nine over Bruce Arnett. 
Tom Rob and Warren Foy finish out in the top four there. And MA60, FA60, Janice Jones held off Marsha Folk and Subi Land along with Robin Green in MA65, Scott Connor. Somehow got past Mark Hauser. I think Mark is a multiple-time yeah. world champion already. One stroke. Yeah, so he held him off uh, in the finals, although he made it close because uh, Mark got him by three strokes in the finals, but wasn't enough to catch him. Robert Rothman and Bethel Barrett. Yeah, they were tied took- going to hole 17, and Scott birdied hole 17 while Mark parred it, and then they both parred hole 18. FA65, Helen Kostoff. Uh, Kostoff? Took it down. Christine Ford took second, and Mary Ellen Moeller took third. Uh, MA70, Michael Schweitzer, who I had the honor of meeting earlier in the year at Throw Down the Mountain, uh, held off Stan Johnson and Kenneth Pasco, along with Bob Ellis. So, Michael Schweitzer, your champion there. PDJ number 272, playing 19. 19- 913 golf uh, is what his wow. rating is. That's incredible. Uh, Patty Adams uh, held off Linda Voss uh, and also Faith G. So Patty Adams, your champion in FA 70 and in playoff. Yes. A playoff fashion. <laughs> These poor people as I... if, as if the first four rounds weren't enough, then they go into the finals. They tie in the finals and then they go to a sudden death. We have it. We have it all. On the Disc Golf Guy channel, when it was all said and done, though, Donald Parker comes out on top. So Donald Parker fights off Rob Lee. What a great battle. But to think they played four rounds of golf and then nine more holes. I don't know. What is that, Mass 72? 81 holes wasn't enough. Then they went and played a couple more. They're almost as old as how many holes they played. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So those are your champions. I apologize if I butchered a name or two. I met most of those world champions and had interviews with them. That's released all on the Disc Golf Guy channel or will be in the next couple of days. You know, and I, I, I said it last week and now I can double down on it. I could go on for another four hours. I won't, but I could go on for another four hours about the incredible experience at the world's Flagstaff, the crew, uh, taking care of everyone, um, the PDGA, the local organizing committee. Uh, the media crews that were out there, we had Skyheiser out there doing MP50. We had Gatekeeper was on MP40. And then our Ace Run Pro buddies who are out on the board were doing FA, um, excuse me, FP40. In so, all, I was yeah. saying, in all seriousness, you should have one of your drop zone podcasts and just talk all about I, the experience and everything you've you heard and saw, good and bad. Uh, your experiences with the PDGA, yeah, all that stuff. I think yeah, you should definitely it was, do that. And such a huge shout out, uh, Nick Stock, along with Grant Zellner and Matt Rostein. And uh, did Grant uh, introduce you? Awesome every day. Uh, no, ah, oh, slacker. Uh, everyone, everyone else, Jay Bird, Conrad, all those guys that were part of Hayden Henry, uh, Nick. I, I'm trying to remember everyone I interacted with, and then tons of PDGA representatives. In addition to all of them, just, just, uh, yeah. Just what an awesome experience on both MPO or MP sides, FP sides, MA, FA, didn't matter, uh, all across the board. And then as we kind of talked to him last week, I'll just say uh, getting to know, getting to meet uh, Mike Hughes and the rest of the Flying Disc Museum people. I know we had Mike on for the after show last week. I ended up recording their presentation that they gave on Thursday night. 
it's it's lengthy. It's like Smashbox podcast lengthy, <laughs> but uh, it's really great. And if you want this insane history of disc sports, not just disc golf, but Frisbee and everything else, I might have one of the most comprehensive presentations ever, ever given in disc golf by Phil Kennedy. It's insane. And we recorded a disc uh, during the approval process, and they tried to approve a disc live right there at Worlds by Jeff Homburg. I've got that on video. There's, there's a lot of stuff going on, and it was awesome. And then just to wrap up Worlds entirely, I'll say it again, like I said last week, uh, Robin, Dan, Jamie, and the entire household that I stayed with, that, th- those were, the, those were the, the, the three in charge. But uh, the people that I stayed with uh, were incredible. Also, Chris Oric was at the house along with Dave Felberg. Tyler Simpson was there. Um, it was uh, Vince was there. It was uh, it was awesome to have this experience of where I was staying with the host that I had. So thank you to First Light. Thank you to Jamie. Thank you to uh, everyone else. It was um, it was truly epic the entire week. I want to go back. I want more worlds. More worlds. I want more. Like I mean, there are more worlds yeah, coming up. Like Pro Worlds is great. It really is, of course. But like. This was extra special. Just 900 people, 48 different states, 16 different countries, the extracurriculars. Like, there's this one of the effing awesome downsides of the split a few years ago is I think the pro worlds now has lost a little bit of the extracurriculars because it is so focused as it should be on winning. There is less focus on. Hey, this cool, awesome fly mart. There's this, all these presentations and there's some of that with pro worlds, Mm -hmm. but like not nearly what there are with some of the other worlds. So it, and again, right time, right place, the masters and maybe like the masters worlds feels like it would have a really, as I think I said last week, a really cool fly mart where all these, there should be like all these old discs and all these things. Junior world should be like this huge fly mart with a bunch of new plastic. Cause those kids probably don't care about an 11 time rock. You know, they, they want the newest fastest disc that they can throw around in their backyard. I, I feel like we can really start to hone in on great experiences for each type of worlds. Yeah. Uh, they, they, you're right. They have their, their different perspectives and what they can offer. And I think to even the opening ceremony, which of course had the parade of flags, but then I had announced the senior player of the year. Spoiler. It was JK again, Juliana Corver for the second time, uh, back to back years, no surprise, but then announcing some of the hall of famers for the first time. And uh, a couple of them being players in Steve Gans and so on and so forth. Like you're right there. There is something special and unique about what can be highlighted or done at any given worlds. You know, this year, for instance, they had eliminated mini golf as one of the, you know, uh, I bet you Rico was not happy, (laughs) nor was Dave, Uh, but they, they had eliminated that because there was a lack of participation, which may be proving in previous years. It's not as sought after. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't offered where mini golf might mean so much more at a junior worlds or some of the others. So, I mean, I think I think they can continue to just kind of evolve in that sense. And uh, the Flying Disc Museum, that was definitely more appreciated here oh. than it would be at a junior worlds. It just or an, even an am worlds yeah. like you're talking about pieces of plastic that were literally 40 and 50 and 60 years old. And a lot of the people in those rooms recognizing 
old frisbees they used to throw and the stories that went along with them. So uh, not that it couldn't be everywhere, but it definitely was appreciated more there than anywhere makes, else. Makes and total sense. It was uh, it was just so uh, incredibly awesome. Yeah. And I did see Alan Risley, who's out on the board. I saw Alan plenty. Alan was one of four PDGA people that I believe really took the week off of work of uh, being a PDGA representative to then be competitive. <laughs> Steve Gans, who am I thinking of? Steve Gans, Alan Risley, uh, Steve Boylan, and there was one other that's... Oh, and uh, Mike, Mike Tresser? Mike? I don't know Mike as well. I apologize. Um, but he was the other one. So it was great to see these guys... It's kind of funny to think you have to take a vacation week from the PDGA to then go play in a tournament, but work is work. work play is, is play. Two shall not intermix, right? <laughs> no, I'm all business. <laughs> I'm all business all the time. I know, as you guys know, clearly. All right, all right, all right. Uh, yes, let's let's get to some other. Let's per- move. Yeah, other professional. We're gonna move overseas. It's gonna be really funny when someone when someone downloads this, and you would expect us to open with the elite series event. Eh, But you know, those happen every week. (laughs) You're you're not wrong. So honestly, this PCS Open presented by Innova in Overas, Norway, uh, Paul McBeth really put the hammer down in the last half of the round on the final round. Uh, It was close with Proctor going into basically hole twelve. And I don't know if if you happen to watch how hole twelve went down. It's a, uh, a, a a tight, a true line up the center of the fairway, mm-hmm. and then a onto an island green. Then the second shot is an island green. Many of the players were taking the true line, not Paul McBeth. He goes big wide hyzer around. He gets into a relatively. It was a tough. Some tough footing, but he had an open shot for the island, whereas of Mr. Proctor got a little stuck in the woods, Mm. ends up having to pitch out, and then ends up taking a bogey on this hole. Paul McBeth throws maybe the nicest looking forehand we'll see all year uh, from a standstill, nonetheless, over a bunch of trees, drops it on a dime to the island to take a two-stroke swing there, and at that point, he just more or less put his foot down on the gas. He birdied all but one of the final holes from hole 12 on. So he missed hole 14 to, to, to go. He, he didn't even need hole 18 and he went for the Island or not. It's not an Island green, but it feels like that there is a path to the green and the, uh, the tractor, but just drops one right there. And for the win. So Paul McBeth winning by five total strokes, even though it was much closer than that. It felt like (laughs) uh, over James Proctor, and James is just on that border, man. He's so close to getting one of these that I feel like he's due in the next. It, it feels like he's due coming up soon, but if he doesn't get one this year, I truly feel he'll get one next year. Uh, Calvin Heinberg, whose putting just absolutely left him in the first half of that round. It was not pretty, honestly. He turned it on in the back nine, but that front nine just, it felt like he just wasn't there. And it, it had to do with his putting. He missed one, two, three. Yeah, three inside the circle on his first six holes. Is that how you build confidence? That's not how you build confidence. Oh. Um, especially going into a major. But again, then he suddenly was like the Calvin you know in the back nine. He was draining all these great putts. It just, he got off to such a bad start. And, you know, when you you lose by six strokes to Paul McBeth, and on that round, you lost by eight. That's that's not good. 
That's not good. Uh, Eagle McMahon taking fourth place. Fifth place, Ricky Wysocki. Sixth place, a tie between James Conrad and Adam Hammes. Eighth place, Matty O. Ninth place, Hallmar Fredrickson, who I believe is 15 years old. I think he's now 16. Is he 16? I think when I met him last year in uh, September, he was 15, but now I think he uh, he has since then turned 16. Uh, Just, yeah, clearly an incredible uh, young man. He's going to be a force to be reckoned with in the next uh, couple years. Aaron Gossage rounds out your top 10. He tied with uh, Fredrickson in ninth. Nice. Uh, Then we move over to FPO, and it's no shock that Kristen Tatar wins but much closer than probably a lot of people expected. Uh, She beat Missy Gannon by a single stroke. Uh, They both bogeyed hole 18. It it really, I mean, it was close coming down to the end. Um, A lot of people, including myself, didn't get a chance to watch a lot of it. I caught just a few highlights uh, because it did start for us at 1.30 in the morning, which is when we'll be ending this podcast (laughs) to catch the... Whatever. Um, and in third place, so we got Tatar Gannon. Probably the biggest surprise so far was Evelina Salonen, whose putt looks pretty good. She missed a few inside the circle, not unexpected. And her final, uh, her final round, she she didn't putt as well as I felt like she did the other rounds, but the putt looked good. And if, as we all have said for the last year and a half, if Evelina can just get to a a good putt, not even a great putt, she's going to be a contender. So be be on the lookout for uh, Evelina. Uh, fourth place, Heidi Lane, right? Lane? Heidi. Lane. Heidi. Heidi Lane. Lane. I can't get that one through. I know, like, there's so many I can't just for whatever reason that one. I'm just going to call her Heidi Lane. Sorry. <laughs> I just I'm bad at that one. Uh, fifth place, Sarah Hokum, and that's where I'm going to stop. So, <laughs> there you go. Uh, congratulations to everybody uh, and FPO who put and, it. And it was in fact Ida uh, who was in six, who was I believe that the, one of the big storylines this weekend that she's the 15 year old yes. uh, that really of course had a great weekend and yeah crushes, but just 15 years old putting herself in the top six mm-hmm. uh, only because she had slipped back during that final round somewhat, but. Uh, you know, certainly was one of the other really cool storylines of the weekend. Um, yeah. So, and, and from what I recall, I think declined the cash in terms of then maintaining her amateur status. So I wonder if that's because she wants to win Am Worlds. If she just if there's that, something that that would have to be my guess, um, because it's not uncommon to see, of course, young prodigy type superstars that are of that age. You look mm-hmm. at uh, Helmar on the other side, Fredrickson. And his age, and of course, accepting cash. So maybe she must have those world's aspirations or some other uh, amateur major in mind, because that's really the only reason you would think she would decline. I mean, she she literally, I mean, she was one off of world champion Sarah Holcomb, and she bested two-time world champion Katrina Allen. I know this is just one event that doesn't define a career, but... Anytime you're you're besting uh, some of the women in that field, it clearly proves where your skill sets are. And, yeah, she, and she's only an only an eight eight seventy four rated player, but clearly on the uh, incline, she's, yeah, she, that's quickly shooting up. Turned down seven hundred and fifty dollars, beating uh, of course so. uh, Hannah 
Jessica Weiss. Congratulations to her and Double G on getting engaged. Ella Hansen. And then last year's champion in Anakin. So on Anakin Staten. So yeah, clearly she has game. And uh, is for now going to retain that amateur status. Okay. To each their own. Yep. So that is your PCS Open 2023. Now everybody moves over to the President's Cup, which will go on, as we said, in a few hours. And then from there, European Open. Okay. You nor I have any media relationship to the event outside of just straight up spectator slash viewers. Um, which is in itself a little bit unique. Uh, understandably, plenty of people thought I was going. Originally, I was, I was in fact, scheduled to go to both Norway and then over to Europe, or Norway over to then Finland. And uh, the, the opportunity to be part of the Masters Worlds came along. And uh, essentially, I'll, I'll just say for lack of a better phrase, I, I volunteered and said, if, if it's not necessary for me to go there and the Pro Tour can, uh, can make it happen without, they kind of... Uh, had a conversation saying just that, and they said, "Yeah, if if you if you're not dying to go and you don't absolutely need to go, um, we can have some other people fill in for you." And and then I got to be part of the Pro Masters Pro and Am Masters Worlds, and so I will not be there. Otherwise, I'm running really late if I'm <laughs> supposed to be, uh, but I will not be there. And of course, I'm sad in some regards, but I'm not uh, disappointed in any sense because it was my volunteering to not be there. And quite frankly, I'm looking forward to a little bit slower of a week. So, uh, I'll, a I'll be a whole spectator. slow week. Yeah, maybe. Well, it's already been crazy these last two days, but, um, yeah, I, I'm going to be somewhat of a spectator and we'll see because I have a hard time spectating or caring for events that I'm not at. It's or well, part of, and it's going to be a little bit more difficult just based on the timing the fact that for sure. actually it might be easier for you yeah, maybe. because you are, you tend to be night a owl. night owl. So the fact that if you go to bed at 4am, you might be able to catch the entire FPO round. I'll wake up, probably catch the entire MPO round. Sure. And then by next week we'll be fully informed. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, I did, as I was trying to wind down in Arizona, that's when FPO was playing uh, some of I those know. nights. So maybe we'll, uh, we'll see. So there were a few big news items this past week. The first that we'll talk about is Paige Pierce. Paige slipping on a bridge and basically breaking her ankle. Yeah. Um, I think she said three bones were broken in her ankle. Uh, they're waiting for a little bit of the swelling to go down before they actually do surgery. And after surgery, it's a minimum of 10 weeks. So at best, and we've, we saw this with, which honestly, it might be better than what, uh, Valerie Mondahano went through because a lot of times uh, severe sprains are worse than clean breaks, which I know sounds yeah. crazy because the break Correct. will heal a little bit better. So if she's fortunate, she gets back in 10 weeks and maybe that's in time for the throw pink, maybe worlds, but I just don't feel like that's a, yeah. real, a realistic uh, goal. I mean, you can set that goal, but. I, I gosh, I, I have a hard time believing that is, and it's not going to shock me. And I think she even said it on an interview yesterday um, that she is, she wouldn't be surprised if she's not playing at all the rest of the season. I mean, l- let's face it. Worlds is in six weeks. Well, I'm sorry. 
Worlds right now, well, first of all, she's not having a surgery until next Tuesday, the 25th. Yeah. All right. One, two, three, four, five. Worlds is six weeks after yeah, she she's had not, surgery. She's not so she worlds. is absolutely not going to be nope. competing at the world championships. Um, 10 weeks, 10 weeks out from surgery puts it on September 26th. Uh, if if you go one more week than even after that, that would be roughly the beginning of throw pink, which I'm, I'm again, that's, I think a very aggressive, that is up the best optimistic, case super aggressive possibility. And at that point, you know, you think, is that something that you're going to, you know, rush back for specifically? Then you go two weeks after that and you have the disc golf pro tour championships on the 17th. Yeah. Th- that again, it, right now, I say, I would say at best is a coin flip. I think it's we're gonna just going to see her hopefully next year at Vegas. Yeah, you would think um, at that point is mm. is it? Yeah, it it so, just doesn't make sense to rush back and possibly even injure yourself more. Or as I mean, we saw Valerie Mondahano who did it right. She took the time to get better, and even she said when she came back, she felt like she was only at like eighty to ninety percent, but mm. but competed well. It felt like good enough to compete so page we all you know we wish nothing but the best we love you here um get better and hopefully we'll see you next year yeah yeah and as the board says she doesn't need to come back just to play one or two events i I couldn't agree more uh it's not like the page pierce legacy is in jeopardy or anything silly of that nature uh, obviously we wish nothing but the best. I have not reached out to her myself yet. I, I will be doing so in the next couple of days. The funny thing is um, I'm going to be in Pensacola next week, next week, Tuesday. Well, maybe she needs a ride somewhere. You should probably, yeah, which means I'm not sure about the podcast next week. So I, I haven't, oh, told, I haven't good. told you that. Ooh, thank gosh. I'm, I'm, I'm here for it, but I, I know just hang out. Um, yeah, that's the first big news. The second and maybe the biggest news of the week is the disc golf pro tours decision to cancel. And I'm going to put that in quotes FPO for their elite series events now and flat out just cancel officially them for the silver events. Now what they are doing is when I put cancel in quotes, because while they're canceled, They're really, for the Elite Series, they're really just moving from what we can tell. They are removing them from the Elite Series event and moving them to a more favorable state for their uh, legal purposes. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe I have heard for Pure or for uh, uh, Ledgestone, probably over to Iowa. And then maybe Ohio for Deglo, and then I don't think anyone's even made a determination about MVP now because that is a very uh, liberal area, the the northeast corridor of our country. You would have to maybe go down to like a West Virginia or a North Carolina before you have that, and if that's the case. We don't know if it's even going to be the same weekend. Yeah. Or MVP. So we're still waiting to hear some things. The Discmania open, they cancel, they're just flat out canceling FPO and they're changing it to like uh, an A tier. It's not going to count towards your Disc Golf Pro Tour. 
Uh, the other events they're saying will count towards Pro Tour. They will have live coverage. They will have post-production coverage. And that's something we can get into in just a little bit. So the Discmania and the Rochester event, same thing. Canceling the DGPT portion, creating an A tier, which is kind of, I don't say silly because that's not the right word at all. Kind of crazy when you think that they're canceling the Pro Tour side of it, changing it to an A tier where then Natalie can play. Yeah, I it, it just logistically it, it it sounds backwards to me. Like we're we're not playing pro tour events because we don't want the lawsuits, which is what this more or less comes down to. And we're going to let her play, but not pro tour events. Just PDGA A tiers. It just the whole thing is is very strange. It's a very strange situation. Yeah, and I, all I can there's nothing insightful that I can add on to any of this that hasn't been already said or postulated possibly. Johnny nor I are in any of the decision making process as we no. always say this well, the, is this is above our pay grade. Yeah, the funny thing is there was a, a a meeting called yesterday from the Pro Tour uh when this announcement came off, they usually do have some sort of like they had an all hands on meeting which we were originally invited to. And then moments before, I think there were some other um, some other things had come up where then they decided that they were going to close ranks a little bit. And it was just actual Pro Tour employees and not contractors. And I got a, a very nice email from Charles uh, McCracken basically saying, hey, we understand the position that you and Terry are in with being in media and Johnny with Skip Ace. So we will let you know. But this is due to some things that have recently come to light, we are going to make this a smaller meeting. So we were, we were actually even left out of that portion. So we have no idea what currently is going on. Yeah. And all I can add to that is again, so these decisions are clearly made above our pay grade, Mm -hmm. uh, so to speak, literally. And the fact that it sounds like this is going to continue to be a, an ongoing conversation in a lot of ways. I, I, you know, there's a, there's a lot that was in that press release but there's also a lot to be, I think, formally either announced, either decided and or announced. I mean, they talk about possibly moving some events. And, you know, you just mentioned a few possibilities. Who's to know the, if yeah, that's exactly are, the way they're going to go, correct. if there's going to be a variation to that. But this is clearly also done in in terms of the big pictures. It also has, you know, and, and you, you've seen it on socials, is created a, a separate but different challenge for some of the people that are on tour, namely our FPO division that has made accommodations that makes plans that, you know, uh, Luke specifically today posted on her Instagram saying, you know, this is all happening within the pro tour. I essentially, I appreciate that the pro tour is, is moving forward in the direction that they see fit. However, with all the changes in schedule and the fact that I tr- essentially travel with Bradley Williams, this puts me in a position of of it maybe not even being worth me coming back from Norway to go back to the U.S. to well, be on the tour. It's tough for her because she's one of the 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 people that tours as a uh, as a with a partner. She, that, exactly, she, she tours with Bradley, and they can't. I mean, they could. I'm sure there could be some logistics with some other FPL players to split up and kind of make that happen, but it's a lot more difficult. Well, and it, it may be even that much less appealing if correct. we're just going to be honest. Like, and I know you could say, well, it's your job and you, you got to make sometimes mm-hmm. some sacrifices, but some, someone like Luke, especially being in a foreign country, that's not her native country. 
uh, really feels like part of the experience here in traveling may be because she is with her significant other and, and really truly wants it no other way. Mm-hmm. And so she had just posted saying, if that ends up being the situation, I may not return from Norway and I may just stay here, play locally for a few months and, and see how it, things all kind of pan out, which I can I, fully yeah. support and understand as well. Yeah, you and I speculated that uh, on that for the Europeans because originally Evelina, Henna, we're supposed to come back to the tour. They had some visa issues and they were like, all right, cool. I guess we'll sit out. We'll come back after European open. I'm not going to be surprised if they decide not to come back as well as Kristen Tatar. Now, obviously this is all speculation. They have not made an announcement, but Europe has a two, not just one, but two pretty solid tours. If you want to pick, they've got the EPT and the ET, the Euro, mm-hmm. Euro tour and the European pro tour. So they could just as easily tour around there, maybe save money from traveling expenses, probably not win as much because those purses tend to be about Mm -hmm. 50 to 60% of what an elite series event is. But, but I, I mean, with the unknown of what's going to go on, because honestly, I still think this is a relatively fluid situation we could find something else out in two days in five days. So to make all these changes and then have the pro tour possibly have to change them again. As a, if I were a European, I might just kind of be like, I'll see if for throw pink or worlds. I'll see if for worlds. And then that's when I'm not going to sweat it. So not going to sweat it until just too much uncertainty or, you know, and Ryan, Ryan on the board, uh, Ryan Pilcher says, do you think there's any chance the DGPT goes back on the plan and instead takes the road of just letting Natalie play in those States instead? I, I, all I'll say to that is I, I keep, I think everything's on the table to some degree. Now, I'm not suggesting that's going to happen. Uh, Yeah, exactly. And you could put odds on it or whatever. I'm just saying at this point, because of the unknowns, because of litigation, because of uh, the entire overarching situation, I think anything is on the table. Now, clearly, some things are more likely than others, but I think there's anything is on the table. And, And it's no surprise, obviously, people from a media as well as a spectator perspective have also chimed in. And that's all understandable. This is a very, very unique situation uh, that's that's got in one way or another is going to continue to run its course. Now, whether it has a permanent or final solution, who knows? But this all still has to run its course. So I guess we'll we'll see. We'll we'll update you when we're updated. Is essentially it. But like I said, I don't think there's anything of any other insider value that. Um, from, from a I me- can add. Yeah, from a media perspective, because that's really where I, I feel like I have a good insight. To put it in perspective, th- it, it is known that the two lawsuits that Natalie brought up, and she is bringing a third one, by the way, for Worlds. It was already, she's already, her yep, lawyer sure. has said, you know, they're going to file in Vermont, so we'll see what happens there. The two lawsuits has already costed the DGBT over $100,000. Mm. So in, in lawyer costs. And I, I don't know all the details of that. I know lawyers are not cheap. So just think of that versus the next three events. Now you also have for a live broadcast. I, I did some napkin math minimum, probably $20,000 to do a live broadcast with the way the pro tour expects 
has an expectation, you know, four to five camera coverage, commentary, possibly on course person. They can't move these live view units between locations that quickly within an hour and a half of maybe when uh, these two events happen. So they have to rent all new units, probably additional cameramen to hire. So at least 20, probably closer to 30,000 per event. What by moving these events. Yeah. And so that's, if you want to put in perspective, you're looking at lawyer costs versus broadcast costs, which is probably the majority of your cost. The big number. Um, there will be other costs. Obviously you're going to, you know, if you're getting an FPO field, you're going to want porta potties. You're going to have to rent a course. Probably there will be other costs, but I think the huge chunk is the live broadcast cost. Um, that's, that is what the DGPT looks at is looking at right now. And again, by the time this comes out, things could change. Yeah. Um, that's where they're seeing the difference in prices. So it it's, and I, I, I want to get it off my chest. I see a lot of people online really throwing this at Natalie's feet saying that, you know, she's the one that's bringing the lawsuits and they're, they're, quote unquote, blaming her. And I guess to a small point that is correct, but I truly feel if it weren't Natalie, there would be somebody else. Maybe not this year, but maybe next year. Sure. Maybe the year after the DGPT may be lucky that it's just Natalie right now. And that, you know, Natalie is getting pro bono work done by lawyers but imagine if someone like the ACLU were to show up, the American Civil Liberties Union, they have deep pockets. Sure. And could throw the world at the at the Disc Golf Pro Tour if they truly wanted. So the fact that maybe, and again, I'm looking at like silver lining here, maybe this is good that it's happening now with just Natalie. Maybe it's not. I don't know. I can't tell the future, but it's definitely one perspective that I, I, I just don't, I don't love that everyone is attacking Natalie. I never have, but for this instance, when I look at it going, maybe it's better for the pro tour to have it be done this way than it could be in the future. Well, clearly it's, it's no secret that, um, transgender athletes in sports is, is not just a disc golf pro tour is not just a Natalie Ryan conversation. It is obviously, uh, through and through a sports conversation, uh, spanning you know countless sports right now, and yeah. it will continue to. So to your point, this is whether it's the policies or the decisions or the lawsuits or whatever it is. These are those early stages where something may then you know officially be defined and then mm-hmm. held in perpetuity for for decades to come. And I guess to your point, yeah, this this could be a much bigger conversation if if. Natalie, for instance, said tomorrow, hey, that's cool. I'm not going to play disc golf. I'm out. We're probably just kicking the can down the yes. road, as, as to your point. We're kicking the can down the road to when these conversations and these policies, in whatever capacity they are, they're all going to be dealt with at some point. And it could be it could be harder or easier in five years. Who yeah, knows? there, like might, there said, might be. Can't tell, but. Yeah, another sports organization could deal with this and set a precedent or anything like that could happen in the future. That was one of the the scary things about the PDGA. I think we even talked about it when they announced this back in 
was it November or December? November, December, probably. That we're on the bleeding edge. Yeah. Like the PDGA is taking the lead on this. And it's a scary, it's a scary thought because taking the lead means that you're going to take the brunt of it. Yeah. You're so, falling on the sword, good or bad. Either yep. way, you're falling on, mm-hmm. on a sword. And, and I, I don't, none of us know what's going to happen. Um, as I jokingly said, I'm going to sit back with my popcorn and, and, you know, watch what happens because it will be, it could be momentous, not just for our sport, but for the country. Yeah. We'll see because clearly what happens here will be looked upon in terms of other sports, whether they're mainstream or niche sports or whatever the the case might be. What happens here will be yet one more precedent that gets set because that's currently what we're doing right now, right? We're saying, well, look at this sport, look at powerlifting, look at swimming, look at what these other sports are doing. And then everybody, you know, conjugates a or, or uh, compiles some form of a analysis or, or, or comparison or whatever. And then similarly, fast forward when disc golf lands on whatever the exact route it goes. Other sports will look at us and say, well, look at disc golf and use us as a comparison. So, yeah, there's clearly uh, a lot of moving parts and components to all of it. Um, and and I don't I don't uh, I don't envy any of the, the ultimately no. any decision makers, because obviously it's a very divisive topic, as we know here on the show. And it's going to continue to be no matter what is done. I don't care where you fall it's, on any spectrum. The Supreme Court no could what rule tomorrow yeah. on one way or the other, which obviously won't happen for a few, wouldn't happen for a few years. But even if they ruled tomorrow and said one way or the other, people aren't going to be happy right. and it's not going to be less divisive. Exactly. So, all right. And uh, that's uh, that. Uh, who knows? <laughs> um, you know, clearly what I, what I have found, and, and it's, I, I'm not even going to use the word interesting, maybe all too predictable. Like you just said, you know, Lots of blame thrown at Natalie Ryan's feet. Lots of blame thrown at the PDGA's feet. Lots of blame thrown right at the DGPT's feet. Somehow you and I, are, I'm sure, are to blame. I don't know. Let's We could pass the blame. Like Everyone has a different perspective of whom they also want to be outraged at. And that's not going to change. I mean, we're not going to change your mind in any capacity of who to be mad at or not. It's whether you're informed or uninformed or you think you heard something that you so-and-so said everybody's like outraged at someone else. Um, And I think that's maybe, maybe that's a testament to just how challenging this topic is because we have so many people that don't even know who to be mad at. Like, or we don't even have a consistency (laughs) in whom to be mad at. I think that says a lot about the topic. It does. Because even people who, even people, like you said, who don't support Natalie are still mad at the PDGA and the PDGA were the ones that said, Hey, you know, some people don't think that PDG went far enough. Some people think that they just made a bad decision. Even if you don't support Natalie, it's there. You're right. There is so much blame to be thrown around that it is quite an interesting uh, point in our history as a sport. All right. That's what we can say on that. Yep. I just, here's what, let me remind everyone. I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor. Well, so don't take any anything of what I have to say. Oh, and let me sports re- psychologist. And as we always say, don't be a dick. Oh, well, that's yeah, that that's that yeah. could be true all the time. Yeah. Yes. Don't be a jerk no online. What, no don't matter be what the topic. A, don't be an a-hole. Um, <laughs> don't be mean to people. Try to view things from other people's perspectives if you can. Just be nice. 
try to understand and be nice. I don't understand you. Well, I mean, once you become friends with someone, you no longer have to be nice to them. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's how it works. All right. Uh, Any other major topics or big topics of conversation that need to be addressed here in our regular show? I don't believe so. Other than um, patreon.com slash smashbox TV support us because you love us. That's it. Just support us because you love us. We'll give at least $1 to Joe Revere's oh, yeah. uh, science well, robotics not, fund. I will not. I will. I will give $1 to because them. Because I am going to You're support gonna be my son and try to beat his team. <laughs> I don't know how well uh, last year's uh, fear team did versus mm. versus whatever I mean, Joe's we could look team. it up real quick. I, I, Joe's yeah. team sounds like they have their... Yeah, they probably do. I think I think Nicolay did as well. I, I I don't know for sure though. But what I know is that I'm going to support our team to beat Joe's team. And if you can support Joe's team, that would be awesome too. But all right, <laughs> um, yeah, I think we can uh, we can close out the regular show unless there's something else major. But like you said, you got to plug in. Oh, uh, this this last I'll give you a little teaser. Ooh, this last weeks That's a uh, world championship i don't know if you know i went to it uh no but this last week's worlds was presented by mvp and they did not pay for this but uh we are because we're happy to do so i decided to keep with the theme and i've got an mvp disc we're going to give away i just kind of oh, randomly pulled it out of the mvp bin looks nice. uh, and uh ion uh putter and then uh along with it uh, a skyline well, classic beautiful towel if this isn't your favorite disc golf towel yeah i mean then you're wrong um that's all so i've got a skyline classic disc golf towel from my event along with this beautiful ion brand new ion putter from mvp thank you to mvp for being a title sponsor at the masters world most certainly give me that uh and as someone reminded we actually have to do two giveaways tonight because oh, we didn't do, do two last week okay. so in the after show yeah, we will right. we will do two so. uh in the meantime Terry, would you like to close us out? I think I can do so. I want to say thank you to everyone for joining us tonight, as always. I want to say thank you to Joe Revere. Congratulations to him and all of not just the champions who we did call off, uh, all those incredible uh, warriors and people that battled throughout to claim a world championship title. I'm super happy for you. I know I spoke with most of you in doing so. Congratulations. But also to the nearly 900 competitors, to the PDGA, to the sponsors, the volunteers, the supporters, uh, all the people that were involved with Worlds. I can't say it enough about the time I had there, uh, not only with my host crew, but also uh, the entire PDGA media crew and and all of them. And a few of our smashies. Smashies like Webb Warren, who's out there on the board. Smashies like uh, Tom McManus, who I got to spend time with. I'm, it, was, it was unbelievable, and I'm so happy I got to do it. So for Joe Revere, our guest and champion tonight, for Johnny V, I'm Terry Miller, the Disc Golf Guy. That's Podcast 463. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back for the after show, where we'll give away some free stuff and uh, get a little wild. We'll see you then when you step inside the Smashbox. Thank you to our $2 and above patrons. Your name is listed below in the credits. If you are interested in being listed as a producer in the Smashbox TV credits and supporting this and other fine podcasts, please visit patreon.com slash Smashbox TV. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 